This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Watch the left field deep. Bam going back. Looking up. He will watch it fly. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2-2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts one. Way back. Goal for Yelich. Cody Bellinger hits one out. He does. So he's your home run derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. What is shaking, everybody? This is A's Cast Live, the Friday edition, here to entertain you for the next couple of hours and to give you something to think about in a positive way. Joining us at 1.30, our A's historian, Dave Feldman. We're going to be breaking down the top 10 observations of the 70s teams that won the World Series. And it was a lot of fun last night. Ken Korak and Ray Fossey breaking down game one of the 1974 World Series. It was awesome. Speaking of awesome. Buster Olney from ESPN. Is there anybody better than Buster Olney? When it comes to his podcast, his reporting, his work on ESPN.com, he's going to join us at 2 o'clock. Of course, he grew up as a Dodger fan in 1974, so we'll get his take on the A's and the Dodgers. We're going to be breaking down the Nationals today, the World Series champion, and a friend of the program, and part of the A's family. Chip Hale will be here at 2.30, who just won a ring with the Nationals. And we'll get his observation on what's going on in the game. A World Series champion for the A's will join us at 3 o'clock. Billy North. And then one of the great players of his era who played in the 1974 World Series. Was he the MVP in 74 in the National League, Commander? That's correct. 1974 NL MVP. The 1974 NL MVP, the great Steve Garvey, will be here at 3.30, also known as cornerback for the Michigan State Spartans. Garvey was a great athlete. I've been mentioning that. You forget, because when he was older, he didn't run. But when he was young, he was a a cornerback. He could run. He played the Big Ten. We want to start off today with what happened yesterday, and no, I'm not talking about game one of the 74 World Series. I'm talking about the NFL draft. The NFL draft is always a big deal. It was supposed to be in Las Vegas, a celebration of the Raiders now being in Las Vegas. Obviously, that was shut down. 
everybody had to be on Zoom or whatever technology they were using. I think it was Zoom they were using. The commissioner was at his house giving you the picks. They had all these different fans behind him for, for each team. The kids who were getting drafted were at home with family and friends. Cody, can you give us the number of how many people watched the NFL draft, which is now a new record? That number will be 15.6 million people tuned in to watch the first round of the NFL draft yesterday on ESPN or NFL Network, ABC, ESPN Deportes, or any of the digital channels they had. It broke the previous mark of 12.4 million viewers for the 2014 NFL draft. The 15.6 million, million number also represents a 37% increase over the 2019 NFL draft. 15.6. As, 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 as the Rock would say, the millions. And millions of people tuned in to watch Joe Burrow go number one to the Cincinnati Bengals. So he goes from the Bayou Bengals Go to the Cincinnati Bengals. Go Tigers. Go Tigers. The reason why we bring that up, it's a draft. Most people, you probably don't even know any of these guys. You know Joe, you know Burrow because he won the Heisman and the national championship. But a lot of these guys, most people don't know. Why? I mean, not everybody is a big-time college football fan. But what that number shows you is how many people went, oh, my God, we got something live and important. Golf and Major League Baseball need to look at that number and understand that can be you. These are the two sports where there's distancing. Golf is going to launch. Baseball says it's going to launch. When they do that, I'm telling you, the NFL is going to be looking exactly how it goes. And it's going to be huge. You start putting baseball games safely on television, the numbers will be through the roof. They will be all-time high numbers. I mean, if, if we're enjoying watching games from the 70s, what do you think it's going to be like if you have Matt Chapman, Matt Olson, Mike Trout, Anthony Rendon, the numbers everywhere, nationally, locally, will be through the roof. And it's something they got to think about. And Buster Olney, I can tell you, we taped him earlier. We're going to have fun talking about the 70s, but there's going to be one thing that we do talk about that Agents and players are going to have to realize the world has changed. And if they want to act like the world hasn't changed, that's a bad move. That will be a tone-deaf move. That will not go over well with the public. We'll talk about that with Buster only. But everybody's doing a simulated season. So now, so, so Cody, is this, this is the athletic is doing this? Yeah, so I saw a friend of the program, Melissa Lockhart, po- posted an article from The Athletic breaking down the simulations for the 2020 baseball season. Now, they use out-of-the-park baseball just like baseball reference, where baseball reference does it 
per day, it looks like the Athletic was able to get it through, I think it's the end of March or end of May for the A's record. So that's how that article is. It it goes through the end of May where we've been doing every day with Baseball Reference because they update it daily. So that's what the Athletic's been able to do. I don't know how they've been able to do it, but that's what they have. Coming up here in, in a few minutes, good news is no matter what the simulation is, the A's are really good. I mean, that, 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 that's what, no matter who's doing it and how they're providing it, the A's are one of the best teams in baseball. That's the good news. By the way, how much fun did you have last night? Because, Commander, you, you listened to the entire thing. How much fun did you have last night with Ray Fossey and Ken Korak? Well, let me say, working with Korak and Fossey was a treat, uh, just having them two broadcast the game together. And there are times where we stopped, so you could hear Vince Scully calling the game, you know, between the Dodgers and Ace. But it, it, it was my favorite whenever Fossey would stop and watch himself at bat. There was one time, I, I want to say it was a second at bat, they, they had him go, um, Alvin Dark had him go up there to try to drop down a, a bunt, and Fossey couldn't get it down. He struck out bunting, and he was kind of upset at himself. And then later on in the game, they were mentioning how the A's could have set a record for the most bunts ever in a World Series game. And Fossey goes, yeah, only if that catcher could, lay, could have laid down a bunt, we would have set a record. And it, but it was great listening to Ken and Ray just break down the game, you know, Ray reliving the memories of playing in that World Series, everything that happened, just seeing the way baseball has changed from 1974 to now, just the advancements in technology, the style of game, the bro- how the broadcast was not on TV and li- just listening to it, completely different, completely different, which is expected because everything changes over time. But I, I enjoyed it. I listened to – from 7.30, starting with you guys on the Legendary Moments pregame show, all the way to about 11.35 at night, I listened to, to Ken and uh, Ray talk about that World Series, and it was great. Yeah, I mean, everything's different. Like, Dodger Stadium is now different, like, compared to what it was back then. And, and you know, I was thinking about it. I haven't been to Dodger Stadium. Whew. I mean, the last time I was in Dodger Stadium, it was in the 90s. I've never been. I mean, it's it's been a long time. Uh, it's beautiful, Dodger Stadium. It, it's it's immaculate, and even though it's old now, it's still uh, the place is immaculate. They always joked you could like drop your food and pick it up and still eat it because the place is spotless <laughs> clean. I mean, it's uh, Dodger Stadium's dope. I mean, it, it, it's a great place, and they've now put a ton of money into it because they were going to host the All Star Game, which probably like the draft, the draft will now be back in Vegas next year. I, I'm assuming that we'll do something like that for the all-star game where it'll be like, okay, the all-star game will be pushed back till next year and it'll be at Dodger stadium, but just a classic world series and watching it yesterday and all the great players in this world series. Cause it reminds me of 72 cause 73, the Mets, Mets lineup stunk. Like it's like, how do these guys get? How do these guys beat the big red machine? I mean, the the Mets when they introduced the Mets eh, for game, we only aired what game one, yeah, and they introduced they introduced they introduced the Mets and like it's like Yogi Berra and then like this lineup and you know other than Willie Mays you're like who? And Willie Mays was forty two years old. He was done. He was retiring after that. But this, this Dodger team is stacked. And once again, you look at Raleigh Fingers. 
four and a third innings in relief. Kenny Holt, Kenny Holtzman went four and a third. Then Raleigh goes four and a third. And then the Hall of Famer Catfish Hunter comes in and gets the last out. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. What Raleigh Fingers gave you, the depth that he gave you. They only use five pitchers in this series, and the only reason is because of Raleigh Fingers. I don't know anybody in modern-day baseball that you could say, not even your love for Josh Hader, Cody, in a World Series game, you're telling me Hader's going to give you four and a third? Uh, I don't think the Brewers would let that happen, first of all. Uh, that that in itself was oh, reckless. Alvin Dark's rest, reckless. No, it wasn't reckless. It was uh, just how the game was played then. I mean, Andy Mastersmith won eight innings. He also had two hits as a pitcher. Two hits with the pitcher, and then Kenny Holtzman had a hit as well. So the pitchers could hit back in the day because, remember, the DH came in in 1973. But seeing those guys go multiple multiple innings and then Catfish coming in, and we're, now we see that more and more in Major League Baseball where we have starting pitchers come in and pitch late in games. You saw the Nationals this past season in the, in the World Series and in the postseason where Patrick Corbin was coming in and Clayton Carson was done with the Dodgers. Uh, Alvin Dark was ahead of his time putting Catfish in in the ninth inning with, with uh, two outs, and he came in, struck out Joe Ferguson, so – uh, they started that maybe they start they could be credited with starting the trend of having starting pitchers close out games. Why is my computer sending me a, a information saying A's cast live from eleven thirty five a.m. to four oh five p.m. Because it's a it's a thing I created on Google for us to be able to be in this nice little Google Hangout together. I don't know why you're getting it right now, but you should have got it I, earlier. You just heard it, right? Yeah, you should have got that earlier. Yeah, well, it's just coming up now. My computer, I have a, uh, I have a, I have a ThinkPad that I got from the greatness that is the Oakland Athletics, and it's like every day when I turn this computer on, something's changed, and I didn't do anything. The that's the nice thing about uh, how can I put this? Uh, I've always had my first laptop ever was a was a Toshiba, so I had a I did I had a non Mac my first computer in college. And it constantly updated all the time because of Windows. And then I switched to Mac, and I have a Mac now with the, from the A's. And I also have an HP, which we use for this program. And the HP wants to update all the time where my Mac will tell me, hey, here's an update. If you want to do it, you can do it now. Or it lets you, like, defer it where Windows, it kind of just does it. And you're right. It's always different. And I notice it with yours more than anything with your ThinkPad that you're always getting updates. You're always logged out of stuff. You're always having an issue with your computer. <laughs> I'm muted. It's changed my speakers, and I don't do anything. All right, coming up next, we'll look at some simulations, and I- I'm still pretty ticked off. I-, I know I should be thinking about other stuff, but this really kind of fries me, and it takes a lot to fry me. We'll talk about it next right here on A's Cast Live. Streaming from the town. A's Cast Live continues with Chris Townsend. You know what a legit question is? How many platinum gold gloves or platinum gloves will Matt Chapman win? I mean, he's got two, and he just started his career. Is it five, six, seven? 
I mean, his defensive numbers are off the charts. I don't think an outfielder is going to get as many chances to beat his numbers. It'd have to be another infielder. I'm trying to think because we haven't – because, remember, we fact-checked him. That's That was a fact. That's and, a fact. He, he fact-checked, <laughs> and he was correct. He is – I mean, you know, uh, I want to say, you know, Arenado's won a few already too, but he's also a couple of years older, his high school teammate. I would say he already has two in back-to-back years. I don't see anyone in the AL catching him at third base just yet. I'd say he probably wins about three or four more at least. At least four more. It's incredible. It really is incredible. When you start looking at his metrics and how good he is, I mean, we don't even mention the offense yet, where the offense is just going to get better. But the fact that he's like really a shortstop playing third base and he has such incredible range and he can play so deep and has just a cannon of an arm, Matt Chapman's a special ball player. I think we all know that. You know, this came down while we were doing the show on Wednesday. And I still just, I, I, it just, it, it, it's so ridiculous uh, that the Red Sox got away with cheating again. They're, they're two-time offenders. This isn't like, this isn't like, you know, the you come down on the Astros, they're, they did the Apple watches and then promised you they'd never cheat again. And then you're like, you've already ruined Alex Cora's career. And then now oh, he's just suspended for a year. He's done. The only guy you go after is J. Who is JT Watkins? He is the video replay operator. That's who, who? he is. He actually apparently was a Red Sox prospect back in the day when I was looking it up. He had a baseball reference page. I didn't look at his stats. I just saw that he had a baseball reference page, and he was a prospect at one point in his career. But he's the video replay operations or operator, and he was suspended uh, without pay through 2020 and prohibited from serving as the replay room operator for the 2021 regular season and postseason with the Red Sox. That, that That's the punishment? The video replay guy gets suspended and a second round pick. There you go. That's it. I mean, wow. <laughs> wow. And then Manfred comes out and says he doesn't believe Cora was aware of Watkins' actions. Are you kidding me? It's a clubhouse. Everybody knows what's going on in a clubhouse. Everybody. Everybody knew all these guys were on steroids. Everybody knew. There's no hiding anything. You're with each other every day, all day long. I it just, it really, so you're trying to tell me that Alex Cora, who is the mastermind of the cheating scandal in Houston, goes to Boston and inside his clubhouse as the manager, there's cheating going on, and he's not aware of it. 
How dumb do they think we are? You couldn't, you couldn't get anyone to buy that story. Seriously. And that, to me, is typical New York. It doesn't matter what league it is. They live in New York. They live in this, 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 this incredible great city. And, but New York is nothing like anywhere else in America. I've traveled the country. I've been to most every major city in the United States of America. No places like New York. But the way they do business and the way they live their lives, they're, they're oblivious to how other people think. They're different. It's just I have friends in New York. It's just different. The way of life is different. I remember, and then you're dealing with a lot of rich people. I remember when we were talking about ballparks and and moving the A's. There were owners that didn't even realize how close San Francisco and Oakland are to each other. People are just in their own world, especially in New York. So New York can do whatever they want. We see it in the NFL. They make decisions that the rest of people go, what, what? And then they just move on because it's their world and they don't care what you think. And I think if you've lived in New York, you'd understand what I'm talking about. New Yorkers are in their own world. And that's how they run this business. I I cannot. Cody, does that make sense? That the guy that was the mastermind one year, the next year, is oblivious to it happening in his own clubhouse? Uh, It it doesn't sit well with me as well because I just don't like the idea that he – he was on the Astros the year before. It happened under his watch. He was the fall guy, essentially. And then yes. it happens the next year, and everyone's expecting a huge punishment. I mean, you know, we, we saw Luno get fired. We saw A.J. Hinch get fired. You know, A.J. Hinch is a well-respected manager around baseball. Everyone likes him, and, you know, everyone always says how much they like Alex Cora. Everyone expected Cora to get an even more severe more punishment than those two guys did, and he got nothing. He got the – he suspended for this season – and he, he already lost his job, so it doesn't matter that he's suspended. I mean, yeah. he already lost his job. And you know, no going to hire him. Well, realistically, he can return next year. You know, with all this going on, because you know, even if there, you know, if there is a season or not, the the suspensions goes through re- regardless. They they're good because we saw that that story come out a couple weeks ago about Luno and, and Hinch. Even even if there's not a season, those guys still serve 2020 suspension. They can come back in 2021. Now Luno's not going to come back. I think Hinch is going to take a few years, but he'll come back. Luno's going to take a while. I think Cora, I mean, I don't think he's going to be back managing next year, but to get away with nothing, a slap on the wrist, and, and you know, I, saw, I read a lot of stuff from people and, you know, social media and, and articles on ESPN and MLB that people uh, are outraged with the punishment. And, and Drellich and, and Ken Rosenthal had an article that I started reading earlier just talking about the fallout from this, and everyone was expecting more. And we got a second-round draft pick and a lower-level employee – Suspended without pay throughout this this, this upcoming twenty twenty season. I uh, it, it's just absolutely shocking to me. You literally have back to back World Series champions are cheaters. Two thousand seventeen, two thousand eighteen, and now we're just going to move on. Just going to move on. And I can't remember one of the national writers that we talked to down at spring training. I don't remember which one because that was a while ago. 
told me for sure Hinch knew exactly what was going on. He knew exactly and supported it. The lies from all these guys and the fact that all these players, they're, they're, they're like bank robbers. They all robbed the bank together. They all got to keep the money. They all didn't get punished. And just a few of the fall guys. There's four fall. There's now five, five fall guys. There's Jeffrey Luno. There's AJ Hinch. There's Alex Cora. There's Carlos Beltran. And some dude you've never even heard of named JT Watkins. <laughs> Those are the fall guys. Everybody else, did they give back their World Series rings? Nope. Did they give back the money they were paid? Did they give back the World Series shares? Nope. Did they have an asterisk put next to their championship? Nope. They got to keep everything. And now they just, we're just going to move on. We're just going to move on. Uh, I, I pulled up his baseball reference page. That'd be one JT Watkins. He's younger than I am by a few months. He was born in August of 89. I'm November of 88. So he's like less than, he's a, almost a year younger than I am. He went to the United States Military Academy in West Point, New York. Uh, uh, no, that's, that's not a good reflection for you going and learning all those great things at, at, at the Military Academy. Then here you are. You're getting in trouble with this with the Red Sox. Not a good look. And to lose your pay for a year and then not be able to do it next year in the postseason or regular season. But just for him to be the fall guy, you're putting all the blame on him. I, I just, I, I don't, I don't buy it. And Manfred saying that, you know, he the, the quote in his in his um, report was that Hinch and or not Hinch that Cora and the front office and the players, none of them knew what they were doing. And like he said, here's what's quote: I do not find that then manager Alex Cora, the Red Sox coaching staff, the Red Sox front office, or most of the players on the 2018 Red Sox knew or should have known that Watkins was utilizing in-game video to update the information that he had learned from his pregame analysis. Oh, so what we got here is a rogue video guy. <laughs> I, I, I just – it just doesn't sit well with me. And I know it doesn't sit well with you because I've, I've known you for a long time and I've never seen you – Really upset about a lot of stuff, but I could tell that this is really this really bothers you. I seriously, you're telling me we have a rogue video guy. No one else knows what this guy's doing. Are you? I, are, are you kidding me? It's 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 it's. It, uh. So you're gonna tell me Adam Roden, who's our video guy, great guy. He's gonna be in, in the video room. Bob Melvin's office is almost right next to the video room. You're trying to tell me if Adam Roden was stealing signs and somehow to, that Bob Melvin wouldn't know? The coaches wouldn't know? Nobody else would know? I mean, seriously. It's a, 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 Let's ask Dave. Hey, Feldy, did you yeah. see how the commissioner said that Boston – the only guy, this J.T. Watkins, whoever the hell he is, he was acting rogue and no one knew what he was doing? Yes, I did see that. Okay, so you're telling me. Let me, let me just figure this out here. You're telling me the mastermind of the cheating scandal in Houston is Alex Cora. The next year he goes to Boston, 
His team wins the World Series, and he has no idea that there's sign stealing going on with the Red Sox. He's oblivious to it. You, you're trying yeah. to sell me that? Yeah, that sounds that sounds feasible, right? <laughs> I guess I just... And the other thing, they're two-time offenders, and you're telling me the video, the, the video, the video guy has to go. The video guy, we got to take him down. Everybody else, you're good. Well, you know, the problem that they had with the Red Sox, and I think we talked about this before, too, is that they were not doing real-time cheating like the Astros were, right? While the, the, the sign for the pitch goes down and they're banging trash cans, that wasn't going on. This was just figuring out pitch sequences. The only time they're actually cheating is when they have a runner on second base. So it was a lot different. I think as the, as the Major League Baseball got into this investigation and they realized that this is so different than what the Astros were doing, or at least what they can prove. Uh, they had to find a fall guy for it, obviously. Right. And they picked, well, the video guy, he let's blame it all on him because they just didn't have the, the guts of a scandal like they had with the Astros. Well, I know if anything goes down here, Cody, you got to be the fall guy. Well, can we just all decide that right now? Got Cody, <laughs> the fall guy and that Feldy and I will act like we had no idea what was going on. It was all, no it was all, Cody from his apartment in San Jose. All righty, so it's time for a little green and gold history. And today we're doing top 10 what? So we're, we're just looking back at the 70s World Series and uh, championship teams and just some of the observations from listening to your shows, watching the World Series on television that uh, NBC Sports California has been running, and just some of the things that went on there that have really just stood out as kind of going back in the Wayback Machine. So for you, how old were you during that time? So I was five, six, and seven. Uh, so I didn't really remember much of 72. I remember a lot of 73 and all of 74. And I even went to a playoff game in 74. I went to game two where Ken Holtzman shut out the Orioles in the ALCS. Uh, Ray Fossey with a big three-run homer in that game. Um, my dad went to all the postseason games uh, during the 70s. So I, I, I have a recollection of 74, 72, 73. I've watched the official World Series highlight films numerous times. So I thought I had known a lot about what was going on. But doing some research and watching these telecasts, uh, we've learned a lot more about what those teams were like. And I think it's really interesting. Yeah, for me, it's it's. I mean, I read about it. I was born in 1972, so obviously, uh, being a you know 74, I'm three years old. So you know, I mean, I didn't see, so I didn't see any of this. Uh, you know, my first recollection really of baseball, kind of the '78 World Series, but really the one I really remember is '79, the Orioles and the Pirates. And then I always tell the story like, you know, the Eagles and the Raiders in, in 1980. That was my first Super yeah. Bowl party. So it's kind of like late 70s that I can recall. Early mid 70s, no doubt. I mean, I've seen the highlights, you know, like the big red machine. I mean, I, I was too young. There's no way you remember that. So do you have an honorable mention for us? Yeah. So some of the things that just kind of stood out uh, early for me, that didn't make the list. But how about during the 72 and 73 World Series when they're introducing the teams? They, the manager would run out and you'd go to third base instead of home plate. And they would, they would line up from third down to home. I thought that was very odd. And they had switched in 74. They started going to home plate. I don't know why they would go to third base. That seems very odd to me, right? Yeah, well, yeah, Yogi Berra 
in 73 and Dick Williams. Yogi Berra went to first base. Dick Williams went to third base. And then they announce all the guys, and then the people who aren't playing, they're the ones closest to home plate. Yeah, really odd. Really odd. Another thing I've noticed from games in the 70s, too, and a little bit in the early 80s, uh, you know now when the pitcher gets the last out, the catcher goes out to the mound, shakes his hands, and they wait for all their teammates, and they do the high-five line, right? Well, you watch games in the 70s and the early 80s, the last out, the pitcher's running off the mound, catcher doesn't greet him until he gets to the baseline, and then everybody runs right off the field. There's no hanging around congratulating They're just gone. Uh, and really, I, I probably mid-80s is when you started seeing the catcher meet the pitcher out on the mound. Yeah, that's um, yeah, that's a good observation. It's like that's like the, the thing that I I had to ask Ray Fossey. I'm like, you guys all have closed stances. Why is that? Who taught you that? Yeah, that's interesting too, right? Um, and you brought this up: the merchandise in the stands. You didn't see a lot of people wearing baseball gear. Um, you saw it a little bit more in Oakland because Charlie Finley was early on to merchandising and selling hats and replica plastic batting helmets. Those were really popular. Um, but, you know, you look at the games in Cincinnati and in New York, there's nobody wearing Mets and Reds paraphernalia. Uh, it just wasn't done then. Even in the Reds in 72, you looked in the crowd, you still had the guys in the, the sh- shirt sleeves and the tie, right, that old IBM look. Uh, it kind of, as you see, the decade goes on, it starts to change a little bit, and the A's were at the forefront. The other thing I thought was really interesting, uh, on mound meetings, no one's covering their mouth. Right, nobody's sticking the glove in front of their mouth, uh, and you can actually read lips. It was really interesting. In one of the games, we go out to Ken Holtzman. You can see Holtzman clear as day. He says, "Fastball, I'm throwing fastball." <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you know, now we're we're so paranoid about every little thing, and everybody's watching us. It's like, may, may, maybe baseball will want to actually wear masks. Can you imagine that? Now, now you don't have to put the glove in front of you. True. There'll be no lip reading because you'll be covering it with a protective mask. Yeah, it's hilarious. All right, let's get into your top 10. Number 10. So this one got to me early in it, it, watching the game for the 72 World Series. Lefty Grove throwing out the first pitch. And it got me thinking. So 1972, right? Lefty Grove pitched the age of the World Series in 1931 the last time. So that's 41 years. But the difference between 1931 and 1972, it's such a huge difference, right? Because you think now we're watching these games, which are just a little less than 50 years old, but it doesn't seem that long ago. It still looks the same. But to me, thinking about Lefty Grove pitching for the A's and Lefty Grove being in Oakland, that just amazed me. Because he was just this, this one tie to this organization that didn't feel like the A's had any ties to Philadelphia, especially in the early 70s. And this was two cities removed from Philadelphia. It's just there seemed no connection uh, for 40 years. And you think back now to the A's, you go back 40 years, well, Ricky Henderson was on that team. Ricky's still part of the organization. Mickey Morabito worked for the A's. He still works for the A's. Steve Lucens, there's still connections. There was no connection to Philadelphia. And I think Lefty Grove, greatest pitcher of the Philadelphia A's era, 195 wins with the A's, second all-time in franchise history, a 7-12 winning percentage, the greatest all-time uh, for, for the A's. And you think back to his 31 season, he went 31 and four with a 2.06 ERA. It was just this connection to the past that just really grabbed me. And I thought, wow, Lefty Grove was in Oakland. 
300 wins, two-time World Series champion, AL MVP in 1931, six-time All-Star, two times won the Triple Crown, four times led the league in wins, nine times led the league in ERA. This guy, and it was a seven-time strikeout leader, Lefty Grove, and, and he would die in uh, 1975. So it wasn't long after that he would pass away. Wow, what a career. Yeah, I just one of the greatest pitchers of the first half of the century, no doubt, and this big part of A's history. And just know that he was in Oakland. I, I mean, Charlie Finley did some cool things, and he was always, you know, he was aware of baseball history. He didn't always, you know, embrace the Philadelphia years. But for that one thing, I thought was was unbelievable. Number nine. So this doesn't get talked about enough, I think, with those A's teams. But that was the injuries that they had to deal with in 72 and 73. Um, you know, before the 72 World Series, or actually before the 72 postseason, Daryl Knowles, a huge part of the A's bullpen, breaks his thumb after falling down, after putting the ball in play as a batter. And he had a 1.37 ERA in 72. He had 11 saves. This is a big part of the bullpen. He's gone for the entire postseason. And then... The A's lose Reggie Jackson in game five of the LCS of Detroit where he tears his hamstring stealing home. So they go into this their first ever World Series with a couple big missing pieces. So you think down the stretch in 72, the A's outfield with Joe Rudy in left, Reggie in center, and then Matty Lou in right. Uh, and Matty Lou played and he actually hit a little bit uh, for the A's coming down the stretch. But now you get to the World Series and they have to go to George Hendrick in center field. Like young George Hendrick, now he would go on to be a you know a four-time All-Star with the Indians and Cardinals and be a real uh, legitimate big leaguer. But at this point, this is young George Hendrick on the biggest stage. And he obviously struggled. He went two for 15. Uh, and Matty Lou, he's in right field. He went one for 24 in that World Series. So they got nothing out of two-thirds of their outfield. Um, Hendrick, obviously, he, he ends up getting traded with Dave Duncan for Ray Fossey, so still a big part of A's history. So they do that in 72, and then in 73, Bill North. Again, their starting center fielder, their leadoff man since mid-August in 73, injured. He's out, and they just have to make do. You know, in the, in the LCS, they're able to use Angel Banguel, Billy Canigliero, Vic Davalillo. They all started in center field trying to replace Joe Rudy. And finally, they get to the World Series, and Charlie Finley and Dick Williams, they say, screw this, we're moving Reggie to center. And Reggie played only one game in center field the entire season. And now he's going to be a starting center fielder in the World Series. And they were just going to platoon with Alou and Davalillo. Alou would play right against the lefties and Davalillo against, against the righties. So Davalillo only started two games against Tom Seaver. But those two guys combined for four for 30. So, again, the outfield takes a huge hit not being able to play. I just think it's uh, – I don't think it's talked about that they had to overcome huge injuries in both 72 and 73 to win the World Series. Yeah, you know, looking at these games in the 70s, I've made this observation, you know, because I was watching the 78 World Series when Garvey hit a triple, and you think of Reggie Jackson. They both were football players. Right. Like, like, Like Steve Garvey played cornerback at Michigan State in the Big Ten. Reggie was a running back. I mean, see, the thing is, when we talked about my age and when I started watching baseball, you know, those guys were, those guys were older when I started watching baseball. So I didn't get to see them in their prime as great athletes who could run. And that, I think this is really kind of educating us. All right. Number eight. 
So this can't be Campanaris' postseason in 73 because he did something that has rarely been done. And this is in the ALCS against Baltimore. In game two at Baltimore, he leads off the game with a home run. In game three at Oakland, he ends the game with a walk-off home run in the 11th inning. So you're talking a leadoff homer and a walk-off homer in the same postseason series. It has only been done one other time, and that was Lenny Dykstra in 1986. And in fact, if you look at guys who've all had in their career a leadoff homer and a walk-off homer in the postseason in their career, there's only Campy, Lenny Dykstra, Derek Jeter, and David Freeze. That's it. Four guys have done what Campy's done. And the thing that I – this is unbelievable. because So Campy hits a walk-off homer in the playoffs, right, game three. There is no video of this. I, I got in contact with MLB. I got in contact with the A's. I'm like, I've never seen this. This would be, this would be something I want to see. How can you have a walk-off homer and no one has video of it? And the only time I've ever seen it was when the A's World Series game against the uh, – the Mets was replayed. They game one of the '73 World Series during Joe Garagiola's pregame show. They actually showed that home run. Only time I've ever seen it. It's probably the only place that ever exists. The Campion '73, unbelievable. You know who's got good Lenny Dykstra stories? Tell me, Billy Bean. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Billy Bean's got some. Le- I mean, like Lenny's doing some crazy stuff, and you know what? They knew he was nuts back then. <laughs> it's, it's, it's unbelievable. All right, number seven. So this is just roster configuration for these teams. Uh, and the A's were special because uh, they didn't need a lot of pitchers. In 72 on their roster, they had eight pitchers and 17 position players. Again, no DH during the World Series. So that's a nine-man bench. Nine. And the A's, for most of last season, had three men on their bench. We're talking a nine-man bench, eight pitchers. 73, they do the same thing. And then in 74, they actually go with nine pitchers and 16 position players. They use nine pitchers. In the entire season, the entire 1974 season, they used 11 pitchers total, and nine of those 11 combined for all the 10 and a third innings. And in the postseason, the entire postseason nine games, the A's use five pitchers. Five. Holtzman, Hunter, Blue, Blue Moon Odom, and Fingers. For the entire postseason, it's unheard. I mean, you can't get through a postseason game now without using five pitchers. Uh, it's, it's unreal. And then having that bench, and we'll talk about it a little later, about what that meant by having all these weapons to use. But roster configuration so different, so different than what we have today. We've been trying to make the case, since we're watching it and looking at the numbers, if you take the if you take the names away from the numbers, so you take Marion Rivera's name, Trevor Hoffman's name, you take their names off, and Raleigh Fingers' name, and you just look at everybody's numbers, you truly can make a case that Raleigh Fingers is the greatest reliever of all time. For sure, uh, for sure, and a lot of it is is due to the quantity of innings that he pitched, right? And and we saw on the re-air last night of Game One of seventy four, he was just coming in in the fifth inning, pitching to the ninth inning. And just that does not happen. And so he was more than your one inning closer. And then when he did pitch, he's just lights out, just lights out. And you know who's not far behind him? Also a former A, when you look at his numbers, B. 
because of the volume he gave you was Goose Gossage. Yeah, Gossage missed a lot of innings too, especially in those like you said, those late seventies teams with the Yankees. He was a two to three inning guy most nights, and they they tried to shorten their game. And they had Ron Davis for a little bit in the late, in the early eighties, and they tried to use that combo of Davis and Gossage in the eighties and eighty one. Got hammered by those two guys because they were so good. Uh, different different time, but but Raleigh uh, again, this weapon that Dick Williams had, and knowing he can go to him at any time. And, and even in that, like in game one of 74, he sees Raleigh start to get tired and he goes to Catfish Hunter on two days rest to get the last out. And just, uh, it's amazing what they did with, with five pitchers for the entire postseason. Number six. So this was a little personal one for me, but when you're a kid going to A's games, a big thing was always what color uniform are they going to wear, right? Because they had their green and their gold, which they would alternate. And then they had their wedding gown white, which they would only wear on home Sunday. So if you knew you went to a game on Sunday at home, you're going to see them in white. And that was a big thing, or at least for me as a kid. That's what I remember being a big thing. Uh, but if you go back and look at game seven of the 1973 World Series, which was played on a Sunday, they're not wearing white. And so I've always wondered, what the heck? And a lot of it had to do with superstition because they wore white in game two of the 73 World Series. And they lost in that horrible extra inning game, the whole Mike Andrews affair. Uh, and Charlie just thought it was bad luck to wear white again. So he doesn't wear white. They wear the colors and they win. The other thing that's interesting, in the game that Campy hit the walk-off home run against the Orioles in the playoffs, it was a Tuesday. And they wore white on a Tuesday, which they never did. Never did. This might just be for me because I was, I was really into the uniform colors back then as a little kid. But I was just blown away that they wore white on a Tuesday. I had never heard of that. I can't believe that it happened. How about Dick Williams and his staff wearing white hats while the players wore green hats? Yeah, that was that was another Charlie Finley thing. That he always wanted the coaches to to be different. I didn't have the white hats, and that went all the way until 1980, until Billy Martin gets hired, and Billy Martin actually wore the white hat in the spring training. And once the season started, he was going to have none of it. And he went back to the coaches wearing the regular green hat. But, yeah, the white coach's hat, that was such an A's thing. <laughs> I was like, when I was watching the, the the 72 World Series, that was one of the first things I noticed. I'm like, why does Dick Williams have a different hat on? That's just strange. <laughs> That's how it works. All right, number five. Uh, this is Ken Holtzman hitting. Uh, just, you know, he was a terrific pitcher. Started all the game ones. In that World Series, as you said in 2004, he always started game one, just the way the rotation went. And seven World Series starts, he was four and one. But you got to just think about him as a hitter. 1973, two for three with two doubles. Remember, they, that's when the first year of the DH was 73. So he didn't hit, he had one at bat the entire season. In 74, he has no at bats during the season. He goes two for four and a double and a home run. Just getting this production out of Ken Holston. But here's the thing to keep your eye on, and you'll see it. I think uh, NBC Sports is replaying game four. Uh, Ken Holtzman hit the home run in game four of the World Series. And check out his helmet. This is a right-handed hitter, and he's wearing a helmet that has the ear flap on the right ear. What's it protecting? That's probably not his helmet. It's definitely not his helmet, and he picked one with the wrong ear flap. And I've always watched the video. I've seen him run around. And I'm like, what is wrong with this picture? What? Oh, that's why. 
Oh my God, Ken Holtz did a home run with a with the wrong side helmet on. Oh my God, these teams are just so fascinating. They're so dysfunctional. They're so great. They're an angry bunch. They hate the owner. I mean, it's just, it's all, can you imagine if they had Twitter back then? Or oh Instagram? my God. You think about it. I mean, you know, the eighth in the clubhouse brawl and the workout before game one of the 74 World Series. And now if that would happen, the whole open of the TV show would be nothing but the A's brawl and we'd be talking to everybody and you have the Twitter clips and everything else. And during this broadcast, it's barely even mentioned. Yeah, Raleigh has stitches and still goes four and a third. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, stitches. It's fine. Yeah. All good. right. It's <laughs> crazy. Number four. So this one's fun. We kind of mentioned Lefty Grove throwing out the first pitch, but I decided to go back and see who threw out the first pitches during the World Series in the 70s. Uh, in 72 World Series Game 3, it was Governor Ronald Reagan throwing out the first pitch. Oh. Uh, Lef- Lefty Grove in Game 4, Fifth Dimension, singing the National Anthem. Uh, game five, I think they just didn't have anybody. So Joe Cronin, the AL president, threw it out, and uh, the Open Symphony did the anthem. But 73, now we're getting busy. Game one, Hank Aaron, first ever active player to throw out a first pitch, and Domer Pyle himself, Jim Neighbors, singing the national anthem. I could not believe that. When they went Jim Neighbors, I went, Jim Neighbors? Gomer Pyle sings? I didn't even know that. <sighs> Yeah, he has beautiful voice, big, deep tenor. Oh, yeah. Oh, he was, a star. he was a star. Game two, Bob Hope throws out the first pitch. <laughs> and doing the national anthem, Tennessee Ernie Ford. Wow. Uh, game six, Jack Benny throws out the first pitch. And he, uh, I remember he did a little thing where he, like, faked like he wasn't going to throw the ball. He was going to keep the ball. Comedian. Uh, and then game seven of the 73 World Series, Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry himself, throws out the first pitch. Oh, that's awesome. Now, and this, this, this is the thing that I love. National Anthem that day is sung by Lou Rawls, who earlier in the day sang the National Anthem at the 49ers game and then took a helicopter from Candlestick to the Coliseum to sing the anthem at the baseball game. That's a busy day right there. That's that. That's a gamer. Two <laughs> anthems, two different parks, two different sports. Love that. That's called. Uh, and then quickly, go ahead. That's called two paychecks. <laughs> two paychecks. Uh, Seventy-four game three. We had Carl Malden from Streets of San Francisco. Charlie Pride with the anthem. Game. Uh, that was game three. Game four. We had Connie Mack Jr. throw out the first pitch. Another salute to the Philadelphia years. Anita Bryant with the national anthem. And then game five, Rock Hudson Ooh. threw out the first pitch. Yeah, he was a big deal. Who, who did, did they do a national anthem? They did. It was a singer-actor named Gordon McRae, who I actually had to look up to. I never had heard of him before. Uh, but I like the Rock Hudson. That was pretty good. Yeah, that's a that, – that's the 70s are so great. Reliving this has been so much fun. All right, number three. Uh, this is Dick Green's defense. I mean, watching these games and seeing what he's doing around second base, unreal, especially on double plays where guys are coming in for blood. I mean, Hal McCray took him into short left field in the 72 World Series, just knocked the crap out of him. And any play around second, Dick Green was just getting beat up. And this is a guy who had back issues. You know, he threatened to retire multiple times. Uh, 
And, you know, he was pinch hit for constantly in 72. And, and especially in game one of the league championship series versus the Tigers, he was pinch hit for before his first bat. He didn't get a bat. But in 72, in the World Series, he's playing most of the game, and he goes six for 18. Uh, 73, again, great defense. He only goes one for 16, but he's winning games with his glove. And 74, he might have been the MVP of that series if he had gotten at least one hit. And he went 0 for 13. But you watch his defense. He is stealing outs left and right, uh, turning double plays, starting double plays, relay throw to get Bill Buckner at third. Uh, every play that could be made, Dick Green made. Uh, his defense and watching it in real time during these games, it's just it's phenomenal. Yeah, we uh, recently had him on the program, and 74 would be his last year. And he won the Babe Ruth Award, but he laughed that he didn't get the car. Raleigh Fingers got the uh, series MVP, so he didn't get the car. Raleigh did. But, yeah, Dick Green just had his birthday, 79 years old. It was great having him on. All right, number two. So number two, is, and it goes kind of back to the roster construction, it's the use of pinch hitters and pinch runners. Uh, I just think what Dick Williams and even Alvin Dark did, using their bench to their advantage. Uh, you know, in the 72 World Series, pinch hitters went six for 11. They had three pinch hits in game four of the World Series in one inning, the ninth inning in the comeback. And that inning, they had three pinch hitters, two pinch runners. And just using the bench. In 73 World Series, a friend of yours, Darren Johnson, who, again, DH during the season, had to relegate to the bench, but he comes up and he went two for three as a pinch hitter with a double against the Mets. And 74, the same thing, pinch hitters again. Three for six, Jim Holt. Two for three, big two-run single in game five. Um, you know, again, just using these weapons and then pinch running, Alan Lewis, who was the Panamanian Express. He was Herb Washington before Herb Washington. He still holds the record for most – World Series games appeared in by a position player without an at-bat. Nine pinch running experiences over 72 and 73. And then, of course, Herb Washington. Uh, but again, just the use of the bench and having these weapons and Dick Williams and Alvadar putting them all together to make winning baseball. I think it's just, it's just a better game when you have these weapons that you can use. You want a little Darren Johnson note? Oh, yeah. So the Hall of Champions, which is basically the San Diego Hall of Fame, was supported by the Chargers. And when the Chargers left, it fell apart. Uh, and it had other financial issues. And so they had these beautiful oil paintings of everybody who was in the San Diego Hall of Fame. And my grandfather was one of them. So my brother goes to, to get my grandfather's picture. And my brother ends up buying a bunch of these oil paintings of Hall of Famers in the San Diego Chicken Pie Shop. Right now, our family restaurant when you're allowed to go back into restaurants, we have the oil painting of Darren Johnson's hall, basically like his Hall of Fame plaque. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so we're honoring a great athletic down at the San Diego Chicken Pie Shop. Yeah, and well deserved. I mean, as a DH, he did he did exactly what the A's needed him to do, and then when he couldn't DH, come off the bat as a pinch hitter, that big bat came through. Number one. I think for me, and for because it's my industry, it's just how the TV coverage evolved. Even from 72 to 74, the differences in how the technology started to advance. Uh, you know, showing the full pregame ceremonies. Uh, Joe Garagiola with this little 15-minute pregame show that he did on himself. Um, you know, in 72, you could see there was only so many cameras, and they started to add cameras in 73 and 74. 
uh, the low home position at the Coliseum. That's, you know, the camera that was behind the plate. That was so important to the director, Harry Coyle, because it brought the fans closer to the game. And the one thing about TV cameras back then, they didn't have these, these long lenses that could get real tight and up close. And having that low home position really changed it because you could get a little closer and make you feel part of the game. Um, you know, hearing the voices of Kurt Gowdy and Tony Kubek, whether it's Monty Moore during the games in Oakland or Al Michaels in Cincinnati, Vince Scully in Dodger Stadium. Uh, I just think it was, it was amazing to watch as technology advanced. You know, the game that they showed last night, they had, a, they had the NBC helicopter, which was the precursor to the blimp. And these aerial, beautiful aerial shots they were getting from a wireless camera. And then they also had a handheld camera going around the stand. Um, just how they brought the game to you as a fan. Replays were still few, right? You didn't have a lot of different angles. You saw more in 74. You started to see different angles from the same play, like Saldano getting thrown out of the plate. You're able to see three different angles. Or the ball, uh, the home run by Wynn in the ninth inning, you saw North and Rudy from three or four different angles trying to catch. You didn't really see that in 72 and 73. The technology is getting better. And the way replays were run there, they literally were run by hand on big two-inch tape machines, right? Like those old computer tapes you used to see in sci-fi movies. That was basically what they were rolling with your hand. You had to pre-roll it to get it up to speed. Um, just different ways to bring the game. But the announcers really had to carry it, right? They're the ones who had to tell all the stories. And I, I just think for guys who didn't do a lot of baseball, you know, one game a week where we're Kurt Gowdy doing and Tony Kubek, the information that they brought, they had it all. And having the local announcers really helped them to bring, you know, fill in the gaps in these stories. And it's just a tremendous job. Yeah, like in 1972, if you got off work and you came home and you turned on the World Series, you would have no clue what's going on. You don't know what the score is. You don't know what inning you're in. And it and they don't flash it until the last out of the inning. So that, that, that to me is just crazy that you, you turn on the television and you have no idea what's going on. No, and it was really up to the announcers to keep giving the count, keep giving the score, much more like a radio broadcast than a TV broadcast now. You never have to to say that. You never have to – it's always on the screen. So it really fell on them. And they did come up with great stories. I think, you know, Kirk Dowdy tells the story of Johnny Bench going out on a date with Charlie Finley's daughter before game three of the 72 World Series. I'd never heard this before. That, that's great info, right? They went to a Warriors game. They went to – they saw the Warriors defeat the Bullets. 97, 96. Uh, it's just, it was all, it was all the announcers uh, much more. They never went into the stands with cameras, right? When foul balls went into the stands, they weren't following the ball. You didn't see people raising the ball up and being happy uh, a little bit more in 74, but you didn't have those lenses that could go into the crowd. So again, the technology helped bring the game so much closer to us and more real, a real experience, visceral experience that we could all share. All right, let's go back over it. Your top 10. So these are my observations of the uh, 70s postseason. Lefty Grove throwing out the first pitch. Uh, A's overcoming key injuries in 72 and 73. Uh, Campy's unbelievable home runs in the 73 postseason, especially a leadoff homer and a walk-off homer in back-to-back games. Uh, roster configuration going with only eight pitchers and nine position players. Uh, just you don't see that today. Uh, not wearing white on a Sunday at home. Game seven of the 73 World Series. I'm just still disappointed by that, but it worked out. They won the game. Uh, Ken Holtzman's hitting, especially hitting a home run with the helmet flap on the wrong ear. Uh, all the first pitch and anthem singers 
from the uh, the early 70s, including Bob Hope, Jack Benny, and Rock Hudson. Uh, Dick Green's defense, just underrated. I think you have to see it, and you start to believe how good this guy was. Uh, number two, which is the use of those bench, the use of the pinch hitters and pinch runners, and how they came through consistently for the A's to help them win ball games. Uh, and number one observation is just the TV coverage and how it changed from 72 to 74 leaps and bounds from in a three-year period and just how they had to bring us to games. I just think it's amazing to watch. You still got all the information. It was just in a very different form. Great stuff. Green and gold history right here on A's cast. Be well, my friend, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Stay, Stay safe. The great David Feldman, our A's historian. Coming up next, you want some more greatness? Buster Olney from ESPN right here on A's Cast Live. Now back to A's Cast Live. Broadcasting from the town, here's Chris Townsend. Well, earlier today I was able to catch up with senior MLB writer for ESPN and... I mean, his podcast is second to none, Baseball Tonight. Uh, Buster's as good as it gets, and it's always great to have him. Here's my conversation with Buster Olney. Well, it is always great to have Buster Olney on. As we all know, he's one of the top columnists in the game, and his podcast is the very best in Major League Baseball, Baseball Tonight. Buster, thank you so much for coming on to talk a little baseball. Oh, it's always fun. Uh, You know, this time when when we're – don't have uh, anything going on. It's fun to talk about baseball for the distraction. Yeah, I think that's like our number one goal here with A's Cast Live is to bring on familiar voices, and obviously you're one. And I think you kind of feel the same way with what you do with your podcast. It's just very important to have familiar voices because I really think it helps people who are cooped up in their home. A hundred percent. You know, once baseball gets shut down on the on the show that I do, uh, we've gone into pure storytelling mode. Uh, I don't think that, you know, the average fan wants day-to-day, uh, you know, watch how the sausage is being made, updates on the latest conversation about, uh, you know, what a possible start date is because you and I know the reality. They have no idea because, of course, they're completely at the mercy of the, you know, the guidelines that are being set down at the state and federal level and the progress about testing and all those things. And so we've, we've had a great time, you know, having folks like Sandy Alderson, you know, come on and tell stories, uh, you know, like Hall of Famers, uh, like, like uh, Jim Palmer, Mike Messina, George Brett, come on and tell stories. I've really enjoyed the storytelling. Well, the Sandy Alderson, that was crazy. And in our world, we're like, wait a minute. You're just going to put Michael Jordan on the big league roster? And, and we, <laughs> I mean, you like the idea of it. But I think Michael Jordan was smart enough to know that if he would have gone straight to the big leagues, he would have been so embarrassed on a national level that that wouldn't have been a good idea. Well, it, it was interesting that, you know, Sandy, uh, he said that the only other time before he talked to us that he had mentioned it was in a fan fest event with the Mets within the context of, of the signing of Tim Tebow to play in the minor leagues. And he compared the two. And his explanation was, look, we didn't have anything going. Like at the time they were talking about putting Michael Jordan on the 25-man roster, the team wasn't good. It was going through transition. And, 
And it was interesting because Sandy, you know, being the former Marine and, uh, you know, very uh, stoic in, in a lot of cases, you know, for him to make the point, this is entertainment. And he knew that a team with Michael Jordan was going to draw more interest than a team that didn't have Michael Jordan. Uh, and the other thing, too, I would say that is that, I, you know, I, I taped a, 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 a podcast with Terry Francona about his time managing Michael Jordan in the minor leagues. That's going to run uh, as we get closer with the documentary to when they talk about Jordan playing baseball. And Terry thought that there was more to Michael as a baseball player than what people realized and that he was getting better. Uh, and so I don't know if Michael would have embarrassed himself in the way that, you know, I, I would have thought, you know, given, given Terry's opinion that he was improving as a player. He would have looked beautiful in those white cleats with the A's. <laughs> what, what a great picture that would be, right? <laughs> yeah, that would have been, that would have been awesome. And speaking of, you know, celebrating history. So we started with uh, on NBC sports, California here in the Bay area, we started rerunning games from the World Series in 1972. We had Joe Morgan on. Then when 1973, now we're on to 1974. Steve Garvey's on with us today. And we've had, you know, Raleigh Fingers. And we've had Reggie Jackson and Sal Bando and Vita Blue. Just reliving this great time in A's baseball. And, of course, you grew up a Dodger fan. You remember the 1974 World Series. Yeah, and in 73, I was rooting like crazy for the New York Mets, who, of course, lost in seven games to Oakland. So you're basically ripping my heart out. You know, me <laughs> at 8, 9, 10 years old, uh, I was rooting hard against those Oakland teams. Uh, you know, the, the people, uh, you know, always remember Bill Buckner for the ball going between his legs in the 86 World Series. Me as a young Dodger fan, I remember him getting thrown out at third base after a perfect relay by the A's in a crucial moment to, for the first out in an inning. Uh, you know, I, the Dodgers, of course, had a couple of nice moments. Mike Marshall picking off Herb Washington. Uh, you had uh, Joe Ferguson making an incredible throw to get Sal Bando out. But, man, those Oakland teams were so good. And it must be fun for you as, uh, you know, someone uh, with the A's to go back and watch those because, wow, those teams were dominant. And you talk about talent. Well, and how dysfunctional they were to go along with it. I mean, we had Ray Fossey on yesterday and also <laughs> Sal Bando. So Sal Bando tells the story that the clubhouse guy, right before the start of the series, goes, hey, I've heard a lot about you guys and all the fight and everything. And Sal goes, ah, that's so overblown. And Sal says, within like a minute, Blue Moon Odom and Raleigh Fingers are fighting each other before game one and Raleigh has to get stitches. You think of Charlie Finley's running the team from Chicago. He doesn't get to see the team. Everything's by phone. They're fighting each other. They're winning. It was just a crazy – it's the 70s. What a crazy time for such a great team. But it was just – it was greatness with dysfunction, and it's fascinating. Oh, 100%. Uh, you know, I had a conversation with uh, Johnny Bench uh, recently, and we talked about okay, who are the greatest teams of all time? And Johnny, what Johnny would commit to was he feels like the '75, '76 Reds, big red machine, are, are one of the two greatest teams of all time. Uh, and I, he didn't specify, but I suspect he was talking about the '27 Yankees as the other. I gotta say that, with all due respect to Johnny, if I had to choose between those A's teams 
uh, 72 to 74, and the Big Red Machine, I would take those A's teams. Uh, well, such, he, such a such an unbelievable array of, of talent and skills, you know, speed and Billy North and Burt Campanaris, and what a great bullpen. And the de- you know, the incredible uh, uh, ability of that starting rotation with Catfish Hunter and Ken Holtzman and Vita Blue, it was remarkable. Yeah, we, you, you can make the case if Charlie Finley doesn't break up the team because they were all still in their prime, there may never, ever have been a big red machine. Well, and, and it's very interesting, uh, you know, just about that team. I said they kind of broke my heart. I actually, when I was 11 years old, I got a chance through my uncle to attend game one of the 75 playoffs between the Red Sox and Oakland. And I got to sit next to Pee Wee Reese during that game, uh, who worked for Louisville Sluggers that time. And I remember that distinct feeling at age 11, and I guess probably I'd been reading Peter Gamis' column in the Boston Globe, that there was a sense that that team in 75, that that was, we were beginning to see, we were seeing the beginning of the end, uh, you know, with the decision in Catfish Hunter's case, and he became a free agent, and all the, you know, the dysfunction with Charlie Finley and that, that need to sell. And I'll, I'll, of course, never forget that day waking up and seeing those pictures of Raleigh Fingers and Joe Rudy in Red Sox uh, uniforms because they had been sold to that team. Man, that was a crazy time. Now that we think back on it. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a lot of fun to relive it. You know, I've heard a lot of different things about how we get this thing going again, whether it's Arizona, Florida, it's Arizona. I, I've been told about 10 teams in Arizona, 10 teams in Texas, 10 teams in Florida. Just what have you been hearing? Because we know every sport is trying to think about how to reopen. Yep. Well, Here's the thing. I know they're talking about a lot of different scenarios, but I've had general managers, uh, you know, club officials say to me, private agents say to me privately, they have no idea what's going to happen. They have to, on a daily basis, have these conversations because there will be a day when they'll get go time. Uh, and it'll, they'll have to be prepared for that. But, for example, uh, you know, we've read recently about Florida being a possible place. Well, today there's news that the coronavirus cases in Florida – have suddenly spiked and raising concerns about whether or not, uh, you know, the, the move to reopen their economy may be contributing to that. These are all things that, uh, you know, baseball, my comparison I've been making is that baseball is like a rowboat in a hurricane and they're just completely at the, at the mercy of forces around them. Um, and so they're talking and their various, you know, th- things that they're considering. There was a report out from Jeff Wilson the other day about how, you know, they could play games in Texas, which makes some sense. This Arizona scenario makes some sense. But then you also read, when you read the hard news, that there's an expectation that the coronavirus cases are going to spike in Arizona in the month of May. So we just have to, you know, wait and see. And when they finally get a, a handle uh, on uh, on the testing and, and how to monitor. And, you know, Dr. Fauci came out again and, and talked about, Yes, it's feasible to have baseball and everybody live in a bubble. I think that's nice theory. Chris, you've been around young men in their early and mid-20s. The idea that you're going to lock down 1,500, 2,000 people in a bubble with no one leaving, I, I, I wonder. And I know from talking with team executives, they also wonder about, um, you know, what about coaches who are older? 
and, and have pre-existing conditions and greater vulnerability. There's just so many things that they have to think through. Yeah, and then you got the labor negotiations. What are you hearing between the owners and the players' union, how they feel about it? That it's not good. Um, and, in fact, as we sit here today, I think the – you know, the currently toxic relationship between uh, the, the baseball union and Major League Baseball and the effort to work out what the compensation would look like may be a greater threat to baseball this year than the coronavirus. Um, because the bottom line is, is that in order for baseball to restart, the two sides have to agree on, you know, what the, the compensation is going to be for the players. Uh, you know, the, we've seen in recent days a statement put out by Tony Clark, the head of player association, uh, you know, comments made by Scott Boris, the powerful agent, about, you know, feeling, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, basically arguing that the terms are on the paper and they need to abide by the terms that they've agreed to in the past. And I know from baseball side, their feeling is, look, our revenue has been completely cut. I'm going to write a column this weekend comparing where baseball is to that movie Apollo 13, where, you know what, the, the spaceship is damaged, it's floating in space, and really what the focus should be on a collaboration, imagination, and trying to land safely and survive, and instead it feels like we got two of the astronauts arguing over who's going to sit in the middle seat, and that is a huge problem. That is a major problem, and... You want to talk about not having public support? Wow. I mean, can you imagine if if Scott Boris or any players start talking about money and contracts and what they should what they should be guaranteed when we have what 22 million Americans unemployed right now? That's going to be a really tough sell for the players. I had an agent say to me the other day, you know, how quickly we've forgotten about what happened in 95 when the players went on strike. And look, in that case, I thought the players were completely in the right in terms of the arguments that were being uh, discussed. Um, and the players, there was enormous backlash at a time when the nation's economy was okay. Well, now uh, everything you just laid out is exactly right. If they wind up not playing baseball because of a disagreement over what compensation is going to be with people out of work, with companies going under, with businesses going under when – Potentially, they could have billions of dollars uh, in terms of revenue. There are not going to be a lot of people feeling sorry for them. And I do think the backlash, not only for the players when they whenever they would come back, but also for the industry. I think a lot of people would be so upset that they would basically swear them off, which is why I think they, they really got to rethink this thing and make sure that they agree, look, no matter what happens, no matter what our disagreements are, we are going to agree that we're going to get back to work as soon as we can. Let's end on this. I've been asking everybody, you know, since we have so much time on our hands, everybody's doing a deep dive into something, whether it's a book, a TV series, a movie. What's Buster only been doing in his spare time? My summer, my last stand against my 15-year-old son on the basketball court. <laughs> We've been playing a lot of basketball. He's now taller than I am. Uh, he's beginning to block my shot, but I got old man moves. I got about 30 pounds on him and I'm hanging in there, but I feel like it's like my last stand and it's a, you know, it's a daily, uh, you know, showdown at high noon, uh, whenever we play basketball these days. <laughs> I love it. You're like Charles Barkley. You got to use that with. 
Exactly. And, you know, he's got all the moves. He's got the height. A lot of things he does better than me, but I got the old man moves. Nice. I've been right. I, I, I've, I've said this on the show. I haven't ridden my bike this much since I was like 12 years old. <laughs> Buster, always a pleasure. Hey, and thank you for what you do, because whether I'm speaking for Cody, my producer, me, we listen to your podcast and it's just nice to, to, to hear it. And as you said, the, the, the stars that you bring on and the stories that are being told help us get through the day. So thank you for what you're doing. And we always appreciate you coming on the show. You guys, too. I'm jealous. Those conversations about those Oakland A scenes, those are fun. You're the best. Take care, Buster. Be safe. Okay, guys. You, too. Take care. See ya. Yeah, I love having him on. He's just good. He's good at what he does. The podcast is second to none. Uh, What he does on ESPN.com. He's always a good get. It's not always easy to get him, is it, Cody? He's a busy dude. He's busy. You know, he got baseball. He has the baseball tonight podcast to do. He's still writing for ESPN. And like I mentioned to you earlier, after we t- talked with Buster, I I kind of save my uh, my like request for ESPN for him because I've known Buster for years booking him, but I always just go through ESPN. Like other people, like Kirk Chin and everyone, I just text directly. Buster, I get the okay from ESPN because he's. I mean, he is like he's like the guy now for them. So he's always busy, but. We pay him back by stealing. We stole his his guests and made him our guests in Sarah and Hembo, and now yeah. they're they're like best friends of ours. Where Buster barely, I mean, he has them on here and there, but we give them full segments to do. Yeah. Um, what he said about the players. These guys better really think this through, and agents better give very good advice, and the players' union really needs to think this through. This is a time to start helping people heal and giving a major distraction. Look at the NFL draft. 15.6 million people watched it. If you start putting baseball games on television, millions upon millions of people will watch it and probably watch it all around the world. Put it on YouTube. But if you're complaining about money in a time like this, about guaranteed compensation, it's not going to look good. It won't look good to the fans. I mean, it, it will so turn the fans off. It will be unbelievable. All righty. So we continue breaking down the NL East. Chip Hale, former bench coach and coach for the Oakland Athletics, now a World Series champion with the Washington Nationals, is going to join us coming up here as we're going to break down the world champs. Hard to believe the Washington Nationals. I mean, they got off to a horrific start last year. A lot of people thought they were going to be a team that was going to sell at the deadline. They were 19 and 31 in May, but then got hot, got the wild card, won the wild card game, and next thing you know, they're World Series champions. Joining us next here on Ace Cast Live. Well, actually, you know what, Cody? I have a little time to see. My computer is off. My computer says it's two twenty-six. What time is it? It is right now. It's two twenty-six on our phone. But remember, I said my computer is like twenty seconds ahead. Yeah, uh, mine just said two, now it's two twenty-seven. Yeah, see, mine still says it's two twenty-six. 
but then it'll turn 227 on my computer, but my phone will still say 226. Uh, anyway, look, we're trapped in a, 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 a black hole of time here. But, yeah, you still have uh, – I mean, you have plenty of time. I mean, we don't have – we're not obligated to take breaks, as we always say. But Well, I, I want to take one here. I just want to you – know, yeah, a real big question. How are you going to replace Anthony Rendon in those numbers? I mean, he had a – he was one of the reasons why they won the World Series. He's now in Anaheim. Strasburg is back. They still got great pitching. And they really made starting pitching chic again. We'll talk to Chip Hale about it next right here on A's Cast Live. Hi, this is Shamanaya. Shamanaya has no hit the Red Sox. And you're listening to A's Cast, your 24-7 destination for A's baseball. Friend of the program, Shamanaya. We had him on uh, this week. Talking about his no-no against the Boston Red Sox. What a special time that was for him. It's always interesting when you talk to these young athletic players. They don't like talking about themselves. They like talking about their teammates, and it's really cool. It's special. They're a special group, this core. And they really care about each other. And, you know, when this thing gets going they're going to be a major, major threat. Well, the team that won it all last year was the Washington Nationals. They finished 93-69. and And they took this thing all the way to the house. And they took down a really, I mean, that stretch of baseball was incredible. And they kind of did what we see the A's do. Getting off to a bad start and then getting hot. And an old friend of the program is stopping by. And one of the cool things getting ready for this interview was going to his Wikipedia page. And it now says 2019 World Series champion. Chip Hale is with us. Chip, <laughs> I think it's got to be pretty cool. I mean, to now have that, I mean, just incredible. It is. It was an incredible ride. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's nice to have it on there. But as in everything in baseball... Um, Chris, we always remember the people, you know, that's the most important thing. And, and the great thing, obviously when we went back to spring training, we brought up most of them back. The only one I think we were missing, um, from our main players was Anthony Rendon, but to see those guys and on an everyday basis really brought everything back and then to come home again, you know, and obviously shut everything down was a tough thing to do. Well, one of the things that we've been doing and the A's want us to do is to entertain people in Northern California here here as everybody's on lockdown. And, and we're trying to bring on as, as, familiar, as many familiar voices as possible. And, of course, yours is very familiar with our fans. So we really appreciate the time. And we're breaking down every single division. We're, we're in the NL East now. And you think about that ride you guys had last year, kind of like the A's. You got out to a slow start. And then you just caught fire and took it all the way to the championship. No, no doubt about it. Uh, it, it. It was, like you said, it was an incredible ride. Very, very similar to the A's. I remember after we had the great uh, wild card win against Milwaukee, I texted uh, Billy and Bob and I said, well, I'll be watching you guys tomorrow night. And hopefully it's not so hard for you guys. And I was hoping because I felt like, uh, you know, both those winners, you know, whoever was going to be, we're going to have a good chance to really go deep into the playoffs. And, and of course, Tampa took Houston as far as they could go, uh, and we were able to make it to the World Series. So 
I was hoping that the A's would, would meet us there so I could see a lot of good friends. Yeah, that would have been great. And, of course, you know, all, all I mean, you, you had a few former A's on the team with you. Yeah, we did. And, um, you know, it, it's funny when you think about all those guys that we had with the A's in 12, 13, and 14 when I was there and, and went to the playoffs and the way we did it and just the um, just the toughness that, that Bob kind of brought to that group and, and brought them together. But, yeah, that, that stuff helped with Doolittle. Um, you know, he battled a tough year and to be able to come back into the playoffs and really help us um, to win, uh, you know, in, in, you know, in, in the toughest game, because he, he had had a time there. Where we didn't know if he was going to come back at all. Yeah. And I, and I think about our old friend, Kurt Suzuki, wasn't that long ago. I was doing an interview with him when he was with the twins and he really <laughs> didn't know how much longer he was going to play. And we were like, what are you going to do? Once you think you're done with your career, do you want to get into coaching? And here Kurt Suzuki is catching and winning a World Series. Yeah, and that was one of the keys to our whole, you know, playoff run was was the ability of Kurt to be able to play more than really he should have. And that that's really what led to the World Series being tough for him uh, because we just basically ran him into the ground. Um, at his age and the injuries that he's had, uh, we really wanted to catch him, you know, once every you know, four or five days and ended up, he was catching uh, three or four in a row at times, especially down the stretch to make the, the uh, postseason and then to get, you know, in there. Um, he was basically Max's main guy and Stevens Rosberg's. And of course, um, you know, uh, Annabelle Sanchez, who's who he, he had in uh, Atlanta before. So he was catching three of those guys consistently and he just ran himself into the ground and his uh, basically just couldn't even catch in, in the final game of game seven for us. But he yeah. was so key, Chris, so key. Oh, yeah. And, as we, you know, we were rooting for you. I mean, obviously, you know, the team you're playing, we're not big fans of. And, and of course, with all the former A's, uh, we were we were rooting for you guys so hard. And one of the great things about this World Series is it wasn't about bullpens anymore. It was about starting pitching. Your, started, your starting pitching carried you to the World Series, and it felt a little old school, and it was great. Just talk about those arms that you had just night after night, just battling your starting staff. Yeah, I think it was, uh, it was a classic one with Houston too. I mean, both, both staffs uh, were led that way. And when, when I went to uh, Washington in 18, that's kind of how, you know, Dave, Dave Martinez and, uh, and Mike Rizzo, Jim had to develop that team and, and plan for those starters to be key and just to get into the dance. And we knew when you had Scherzer, Strasburg, you know, going back to back the first year, now when we add Patrick Corbin from the Diamondbacks, the lefty, um, it was going to be huge for us. And, we, and that's how we had to be. Uh, to be frank with you, our you know early start and our struggles, we our bullpen was really, really scuffling. And, and starters were having to just, you know, go on that gas pedal. And we were like, okay, well, we're going to go as long as we can with these guys. But uh, thank goodness we made a few trades, got some guys hot in the bullpen. But, yeah, our starters were fantastic. Uh, Max was is Max. Uh, Steven probably had the best year of, of the group. I mean, he was fantastic. He ended up being the World Series MVP. Um, but he made um, so many key starts for us in big games, uh, including game six in the World Series, um, that, you know, the, to, to clinch against the Dodgers. Uh, just incredible starts against great teams. And then the guys we were facing, like you said, it was an old school World Series where you're going to let this guy go as long as he can go. And then basically we were taking 
and plugging in our the guy that had two or day, three days off, and he was our main reliever. So whether it was Corbin or Strauss or even Max, they were coming in in the, the sixth or seventh inning to, to try to give it, get us some length at the end there. And I think about Strasburg when he was shut down years ago and the organization took a lot of criticism because then they lost in the postseason. How big do you think this was for the organization and Strasburg to finally win and, and get that the past away from you, that, that whole shutdown situation? It was enormous. Uh, I think, you know, we had so many different coaches from, from different places that had never experienced um, what had happened. And you could just you could see it in the, in the um, wild card game against Milwaukee. See the tightness and the nervousness of guys in and just look at their face and look it over into the ownership box and seeing the learners. And you could just see it like, oh, these guys have done so well, but, I, you know, this is probably it. You know, here we go again. You know, the, the Brewers are going to beat us. And, and and when Soto gets the hit and the ball bounces funny and everybody scores, you know, it just loosened it up and it just it just got those guys to say, you know what, we can do this and we can move on. And, and even though it was a one-game series, um, I think that one game changed it for those guys. And Strauss, it was so key for us because – Anytime we needed it, starting, obviously, and then coming out of the bullpen, which these guys have never done. I mean, it was almost like, you know, one when I was with the Diamondbacks in the minor leagues as a manager, and we went to those World Series games, and to watch Randy come out of that bullpen, it changes the whole group. I mean, the, the team is so energized by those guys actually doing that and putting themselves at risk. Let's face it, you're putting yourself at risk for injury. No doubt, and, and and yeah, those are those are some great times. Diamondbacks, Yankees, and Randy Johnson coming out of the pen after yeah. Game Six. Now you mentioned Juan Soto. It's hard to believe that this kid is this talented, and Chip, he's only twenty-one years old. It's incredible, Chris. He's one of my. Uh, I have. A, I had an issue with the team because I they always said I favored one. You know, the kid was nineteen when he comes to the big leagues and he is just carrying us on his shoulders. And, um, and I, it was so, so protective of him because I feel like he's, you're like your son out there. He's just, he's just a baby. Can't drink, you know, can't do this. He's, he's uh, you know, you're always, the umpires are picking on him. So we were all, I was always a little more uh, protective of him. So they finally, they made his Jersey after we had uh, clinched to get into the playoffs, the players presented me a Jersey and it had my number on it. And the back it said, hail Soto like I was his father. So, um, you know, I was very proud of him. Um, if you know him and you get to know him, uh, he's, he's a classy kid and he's, I think one of those once in a generation players that, um, you know, you just, just can't wait to see what he's going to improve on next. And he, he has such a thirst for the knowledge and the competition that, uh, there's no player that I've been around in a long, long time, um, that I just think is going to be so, so good. Yeah, and you mentioned Rendon leaving as a free agent and going to the Angels. I mean, that's really – I look at your guys' team. You still got just about everybody, and you can make another run at this thing. It's just how are you going to replace Rendon's numbers? Well, it's going to be tough, and we saw that, uh, Chris. We were really – you know, we're searching for guys to kind of plug into the three holes. Who's going to hit behind Soto? Who's going to protect Soto? Well, the bottom line was Soto hit fourth. Anthony hit third. Juan protected him, and then after that, we had the great year from Howie Kendrick, um, and the playoffs and World Series. Of course, Zim came back and was really, really good to protect Juan. But uh, 
you know, we signed Sterling Castro, who's a really good player. He was in our division East in Miami and had a great second half. And is he going to play third for us or is he going to play second? Um, we have the young kid, Carter Keyboom. We're trying to trying to get him ready. But you can see it. You can see it in the games, even though they're spring training games. And we have a really veteran team, so you kind of have to throw the, the, the games out, you know, the numbers of, of those spring training games. You can see there was that guy that, that everybody sort of counted on in RBI situations, get on a big spot in Tony. So, um, it'll have to be developed, you know, over over time, and, and it may be a struggle to start to try to you know figure out who's going to hit third. Is it going to be Juanch moves up there? Um, who knows? I mean, it's going to be a tough one. I mean, we have the we have the Bellarmine grad uh, Eric Thames, who will uh, who will battle and, and hit behind one or hit you know somewhere in that spot. Who who is really exciting in spring training? Um, it's just a matter of how often we can get him in there. You know, you grew up in the Bay Area, and right now we've been honoring the 72, 73, and 74 Oakland A's teams who won three straight World Series. We've been running the games here on A's cast, and they've been showing the games on television on NBC Sports California. We're now into the 1974 World Series. You would have been, what, 8, 9, and 10 during that time. What do you remember as a little kid watching the A's win those World Series? Well, you know what's funny is, I, as a little kid, I, I remember obviously watching and being so excited. Um, we didn't get a, you know, I grew up in Cupertino at that time, so we didn't get a chance to go over to the Coliseum much. We would mostly go to the Candlestick uh, for our games, but obviously when the game was on TV and watching the World Series, it was exciting. I think I became more of a fan of those three years in, the, in that group of players as I got older and was able to meet those guys and, and, I'd be honest with you, because I watched the set. What was it? The um, the Mets uh, A's game seven. I think it was Kenny Holtzman and Matlack. Uh, I watched it the other day. Was sitting out in the sun in my backyard here in Tucson, and I was watching game seven on on YouTube. It was funny. I watched the whole game, and it was so exciting because that was to me that was the epitome of tough, gritty baseball. Burke Campanaris. That whole group of guys, um, it was fun to watch and, and be able to be an A and meet those guys later on because, of course, during those, those obvious three years, we got to do a lot of their, their um, anniversary things. And to meet those guys was incredible for me. I, it's an honor. Yeah, and, and how crazy is it watching old school baseball where there's no score, there's no inning, it's just you just watch the game. I mean, if you come into a game mid-game, you have no idea what's going on. No, I know. And, you know, even the announcers, you know, to see those guys playing games again was really fun for me to listen to because, you know, people, I think kids today don't realize they, they can turn on during the season when we were actually, you know, they could get the package and they can watch any game they want anytime. We didn't get that. I mean, it was very rare the games were on TV. Um, so it, it, it was fun to watch. I, I you know, we, we always battle back and forth with uh, some of the hitters. Like, hey, we could choke up, you know. Good things can happen with two strikes. You spread out a little bit. And you watch these guys in, in these games, in the, those World Series, and they're choked up almost to the trademark. Uh, so I would I'd take pictures on the TV and send it to some of our players and say, see, you can choke up and be successful. Yeah, and my producer's dying for me to ask you this because it was a phenomenon. How are you guys going to replace Baby Shark? We don't know. In fact, my wife and I were talking about it the other day because we did uh, we did a little Zoom um, 
is Ryan Zimmerman raised about $250,000 for the people on the front lines of the, the nurses and doctors and, and everybody at the hospitals. And we did a Zoom, we did a game seven Zoom where they had the game playing and then we would come on and, and comment. And they had, we actually got uh, Gerardo Parra to come on from Japan. He's over there playing in Japan right now. So he was on. And it was funny because we were like, yeah, you know, there's no way are we going to, because to be frank with you, after all the celebrations and everything, it, could, it got to be a little bit, it got to be a little much after a while. So. Um, <laughs> uh, we said, are we going to have to do this again? Or are we going to try to get something like this? But it was funny. We, there were times Dave would say, Chip, let's just put, let's, let's have uh let's have par a hit just for the fact that we can, uh, you know, get the fans out of their seats and get them going. They will get something going. <laughs> that's how, that's how it got to be. Oh, that's great. Just what a special year. And we're so happy for you. Thank you for coming on. It's great to hear your voice. Be safe, and hopefully we'll be talking to you once this season gets going. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate you having me. Take care, Chip. Okay, you too. Chip Hale. Really close to Bob Melvin. They're, 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 they're very, very good friends. Think about that. And I remember we, we had we, – we, did we have him on, Cody, during the World Series or after the World Series? I think it was both. I think we had him on during the World Series, and then we had him on after they won the World – we had him on the day of the parade, I think, uh, okay, in D.C. Because he told that story that – I think it was in the wild card game where they, like, put up para. We need to get the stadium rocking. And they only pitched in them. So they would start seeing ba- – ba- and everybody would go nuts. they go nuts when Baby Shark would, would play. It became a national phenomenon. I mean, a song that was popular on YouTube for little kids is now uh, the hit sensation for Major League Baseball and grown-ups and grown men and women. And it was just a, a great – I mean, to, for me, I thought it was great to see in baseball for something like this to take over, especially helping a team propel its way to a World Series title. And I mean, th- the bigger question now is what's what's bigger to replace, Anthony Rendon or the momentum that yeah, Baby mean, Shark brought you? Look at the St. Louis Blues and Gloria. It's like you can't just keep carrying that on forever. You got to come up with something new. I mean, this is not the first time a team has used a song or used a gimmick to get everybody going. But that stadium would go nuts when when he'd come up to the plate. And I had it was you who filled uh, filled me in on it. My kids are older now. I had no clue. You're a baby shark. I'm like, what are you talking about, baby shark? What? I have no idea what baby shark is. The only reason I know what it is is because my fiance Dina has three cousins who are eight, seven, and and her little cousin's two years old. And they and every time we're down there in Pismo, uh, her little cousin will yell at Alexa to play Baby Shark, but it doesn't come out as Baby Shark because she's still her language still isn't great yet, being two years old. But Baby Shark comes on, and I'm like, then all of a sudden they're all doing the the little shark moves and, and everything. It's that's what, that's kind of, kind of how I learned from it. And then I had to explain it to you what it was. So the Washington nationals was Strasburg, Scherzer, Corbin, Sanchez, and Ross. Their starters went, their main starters went 66 and 36. They pitched the second most innings in baseball, 938 and two thirds. They had the second best ERA at 3.53. They were number one in war at 21.4 and second in baseball and strikeouts with 1,010. Their bullpen stunk. 
27 and 33, 24th in baseball, 29th in baseball in ERA at 5.68. But when you got the starters and they can get you deep and they get you into the postseason, it just goes to show. And then your starting pitchers are your best pitchers. So they're throwing a bunch of their starters in relief in, in those games. Corbin was here. I mean, they, they were, it was a, it was a lot of fun to watch that world series and the only world series ever where the road team won every game. And that was after the Astros were what, 60 and 21 at home or wherever they were in the, in the uh, regular wonder why. season. I wonder why they were so dominant at home. Uh, last time I checked the, the commissioner's report showed no wrongdoings in 2019. I mean, they go 16, 21 at home. Come on. I mean, that's, that's remarkable. And it's all because Jordan Alvarez hitting a home run every other at bat. It, I'm not. I'm. I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying they were 60 and 21 at home. They're cheating. And they won what? 50, they would have won 57 games on the road because they had 107 wins. I mean, come on, that's a lot of wins on the road too. It's a lot easier to say it only happened in one year. Fire the manager. Fire the GM, and we move on. That's what it is. They know it looks bad. Baseball knows. They know. There's not one person who covers the game of baseball who, once again, remember I said earlier today, they just don't get it when talking about, hey, we're just going to get rid of the video guy for the Red Sox and move forward when you're a two-time cheating offender. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Alex Cora's got no idea. Come on. The mastermind of the cheating in 2017 doesn't know what's going on in 2018? I don't buy it. I just Okay. So and and then now you're going to tell me that the Astros won the World Series cheating in 2017 and then they just stopped. They didn't use it in 18 or 19 cuz it worked so effectively in 2017 they're going to stop it. I mean they did lose in the ALCS to wait wait for it. The Red Sox in 2018. I I just I I I, I can't believe any of this. I mean the the average the average person who has a brain would know that you're not giving us the full details. The the Astros won like it's like we said 60 games at home last year. That was more wins at home than four major league baseball teams won all season. That be the that be your Kansas City Royals, my Baltimore Orioles, the Detroit Tigers, and Roxy Bernstein's Miami Marlins. You know we should play a game. I used to do this on my old uh my old talk show was you pick who's going to be the worst team in baseball. So it's not picking who's going to be the best. You pick who's the worst. And whoever picks the team that has the worst record wins the prize, whatever the bet is. You know, we used to do steak dinners. So we may, we may have to bring that back, get a bunch of guys on and say, okay, we're going to have a draft. And you draft the wor- who you think – because sometimes you draft a team next, you know, they go 500 and you, and you, and you lose. I got my and pick. And by the way – What? I got my pick already. So, by the way, the person who lose is, is the team that has the best record, and you've got to pay for everybody for dinner. Okay, interesting. I'm still going to stick with my pick. Yeah, so with the first pick in the draft, I would go, I'd go like Baltimore Orioles. And the second pick of the draft, it's the Detroit Tigers. And, 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 and the guy who wins 
gets a little something special, but everybody gets taken to dinner by the, the guy who loses who took the team that actually had the best record out of all those teams drafted. I, I like, like that. I, I like that. And on Monday, we're going to preview, wait for it, the Orioles as we start the AL East. Oh. So we're going to start with the Orioles because, well, they were the worst oh. team in the division. And I'm efforting the great Jim Palmer, Hall of Famer. And if not, we'll get another guy, friend of the program we had on, Rick Dempsey, catcher during those Oriole teams. We'll Great see, Rick Dempsey. We'll think what we'll see what they think of the uh, Orioles going into this year, but uh, shocker, my pick will not be the Orioles. Who, if you do get first pick in the draft, who would you draft? Oh, with the first pick, I, I'm so I'm I'm still going to take the Pirates as being the worst team. Wow. I don't care if I have to buy the steak dinner. That's just maybe that's reverse psychology on my part, saying they're going to be the worst team and they're going to be good. They're not going to be good. That's okay though. I'm all right with it. Hey, I don't. I. How are you going to replace Anthony Rendon? With a 22 year old kid. I mean, Kai Boom is supposed to be pretty good, but he's 22 years old and he he only had a few at bats last year. Uh, that's those are big shoes to fill. I mean, you can put Estrubal Cabrera there, or you can use Howie Kendrick. But I mean, the rest of your infield is pretty solid. You got Eric Thames, as Chip mentioned, the Bellarmine grad. You have uh, Trey Turner who could play shortstop. You have Starling Castro who you signed to play second. Your outfield set with Robles and Juan Soto and Adam Eaton, but third base is a big hole. And the, the bank on a 22-year-old kid who didn't have a lot of at-bats, I'm not saying he can't do it because we've seen a lot of youngsters come up and do very well. Uh, I don't think he's going to be Juan Soto. Um, I've, I've been wrong a lot before, but I can just say he's not going to be Juan Soto confidently. Juan Soto is only 21 years old. That's amazing. He's younger than he's younger than Ronald Acuna, and I think he has – I think he might have better numbers than Acuna does too. I think he's like, I want to say he's a little bit younger than Acuna is because I think Acuna is now 22. Soto turned 21 during the World Series. He could actually go out and have a beverage after they won the World Series legally. Yeah, Acuna just turned 22 in December where Soto turned 21 in October. That's it's remarkable. In his career, he has here he has 56 home runs, 180 RBIs, a 287 batting average, at 140 OPS plus. What's his What's his WAR already at twenty one? Seven point four. This kid's gonna be a haul. I mean, if if, if 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 something drastically happens to him, injury or whatever, if nothing happens, if he just gets to have a full career, he's easily gonna be a Hall of Fame. Oh, uh, there's no doubt. And Acuna now. Is he in his career? He has a nine point nine WAR. This will now be his if once the season starts going. This will be his third full major league season. Well, second full. He came up with one hundred eleven games in his first year. He has a nine point nine WAR. He has sixty seven career home runs, a two eighty five average, one hundred sixty five RBIs, fifty three steals, and a one thirty OPS plus. So Soto hasn't beaten OPS plus and RBIs and batting average, and he's only eleven home runs behind. Acuna, so, and they're both in the same division, so we're going to see a lot of these two guys for a long time going forward. Because remember, Acuna signed that deal. What was it, eight for a hundred million? So he's going to be in Atlanta for another seven seasons. Coming up next, a World Series champion from 1974, Billy North, is going to join us right here on A's Cast Live. This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Looking up, he will watch it fly. And 
29 other MLB clubs. 2-2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts one. Way back! It's one out. So he's your home run derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. All righty. Our next guest. A two-time American League stolen base leader, a World Series champion in 1974 with the Athletics. He played for the Cubs, the Dodgers, the Giants, and the A's. We caught up with him earlier, Billy North, right here on A's Cast Live. Well, now joining us here on A's Cast Live, a World Series champion with your Oakland Athletics and... He was the first ever DH in A's history. The great Billy North is with us here on A's Cast Live. How are you, Billy? I am wonderful. How about you? Oh, I can just tell you it's been a lot of fun watching uh, these old world series and just how spectacular you and your teammates were. Just uh, unbelievable. 1974, you look at the names in the world series the Hall of Famers, the All-Stars, the great players with the A's, the great players with the Dodgers, and a lot of your future teammates as you play with the Dodgers later on. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. It was a uh, – we all came up together, you know, and and uh, a lot of those guys were in, in 1969. They were in uh, Winter Instructional League, and – if you look at that class right there, uh, uh, there were a lot of guys that played in that winter instruction league that were in that World Series there. It would be amazing. Yeah. And I still cannot believe that the – I know the Dodgers were good and they won 102 games, but the A's had won two straight World Series. They're in the World Series for a third straight time, which is remarkable, and yet the Dodgers would go to the media – and, and basically pop off about how the A's weren't as talented as they were, boy, that was a bad move. Well, I don't know if it was a bad move or not, but I got a World Series ring on. It says 1974. <laughs> uh, well, that's the way they were. Everybody hated the Dodgers in baseball until they played for them, of course. <laughs> And uh, because they were always a spoiled little rich kid. Uh, but, you know, the game is played on the field, not in the newspaper. I think it was probably 74, when you look at it, it was one of the most efficient World Series wins a team ever had. Four of the scores were three to two. And we just played real well. And you're pitching. You only use five pitchers in this World Series. That's it. That's something that we, we talk a lot about stuff you'll never see again, but a team only using five pitchers in a World Series, you'll never see that again. Series? We only use five pitchers? Yeah, you only use five pitchers the entire series. I never knew that. Wow. Yeah. I can, yeah. Raleigh <laughs> and the rest of the guys. <laughs> wow. Hmm. Yeah, because Catfish Hunter, 
who pitched in the final game of the ALCS, actually came in and got the last out of game one. Yeah, struck out Joe Ferguson. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> but you know, I, I didn't know we only used five guys. Isn't that something? Yeah, it, that's, it's... It, that's very efficient. <laughs> yeah. So when you say the most efficient World Series... That would be one of the re- and one of the reasons you were allowed to do that is because you had such a great reliever in Raleigh Fingers who could, you know, in, in modern day history, we watch these guys just go one inning. You know, Raleigh can go four to five innings for you in, in a game like this. How many innings pitched did he have for the season? Wasn't it in the hundreds? Oh, yeah. He had like 70 something appearances. It was amazing. Yeah. Oh, he come in the seventh inning with bases loaded, nobody out, and finished the game. <laughs> yeah, he was a hey man, he could go. You know, one thing, one of the things I I, I wanted to break down with you is cool. you're the first designated hitter in A's history. This is a brand new thing where all you're gonna do is hit. You're not gonna play in the field. What was it like for you to try and establish some type of routine like we see with DHs now, whether it's guys going hitting in a cage, guys riding a bike to keep the blood flow going? What was it like for you, and what was your game plan as a designated hitter? Well, you know, you, you're in a new era. We just went up and hit. And being the, I mean, instituting that, being the first one, there was no routine. I just kind of, it wasn't that intricate. I just went up four, four times. It, but the reason I got that was because Caponeris was suspended. And I had a good spring, so Dick Williams was, uh, I was the only other leadoff type hitter. And the good part about that, I ended up getting a job as a center fielder. Did you like, did, did you like DHing and, and not being in the field, or did you not like it? Well, I'd rather play the whole game. I mean, the the, the the whole thing because I was a center fielder and I like playing outfield. But you know, being being on the field is is uh, it, you know coming in there. They had some guys uh, that had to prove themselves, and I I got to be the center fielder by attrition. <laughs> you know, they had Conigliero and then they had uh, uh, Angel Mangual before I got my shot. But it's, uh, I mean, we were a team. You fit in there. You got action. But I'm glad Dick Williams was one of my favorite, probably my favorite manager every, of all time because he gave me the job. In 1978, you now go to those Dodgers, and you guys win the NL pennant. You lose in the World Series to the New York Yankees, but that was a famous World Series. What was that like when you got the two largest markets in our country, L.A. against against New York, and that's some of the highest-rated television in baseball history? I could imagine. It was uh, – we won those first two games, but I had come over from that – other league, and during that second game, the Yankees started to hit. And on the plane ride to New York, I told them, I said, you know what? These guys are starting to hit. Pitching's over. (laughs) 
in this World Series. We're going to have to slug with these guys. And they went to us uh, in the next four games like a hot knife through butter. So, but the Yankees, the Yankees were the best team. Uh, uh, them guys, those guys at the Dodgers didn't know what a great team that was. Uh, it was, it, hey, going out 2-0 with two games to nothing was a setup. They were coming to get us. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, one of the things that we've we've talked a lot about with these teams in the seventies is it's just the craziness of the players and Charlie Finley and Al Banda was telling the story about Blue Moon and, and, and Raleigh getting into a fight before the seventy four World Series. You had your oh, altercation with Reggie Jackson that that ended up hurting Ray Fossey. It That was a crazy time. You guys, as great as you were, but it was a crazy time. Well, you know, the one thing about baseball is that you got – every team I ever played on had fights because you've got so many individuals in, uh, uh, together on every day for seven months, and personalities can grate on – each other sometimes, but we were the world champions. That's why we got the press on that. And, and it's the kind of thing that, Hey man, we always played better afterwards. They said, you know, and then we, like we, like you said, then we went through the, that 74 one. Boy, was that a surprise? But, uh, then we went to, didn't, they said, we, well, we know they're going to win now because they're fighting. So. <laughs> yeah, Ray, Ray, Fossey said, Ray Fossey said he has a picture of him standing up on a stage after the World Series, and down below you see arm-in-arm, arm, Blue Moon, and, and Raleigh. He goes, you know, you guys were brothers. You fought like brothers, but then you played like brothers on the field. And truly, during that time, you guys were invincible. Thank you so much for coming on and, and reliving these magical moments. Be safe, be well, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, Chris, I appreciate you considering me. Thank you. You know, I can't wait for a time where I don't have to tell people to be safe. I drop that. You know? I hope that time comes soon. I really, really do. We have, we for the first time here on A's Cast Live have some depressing news about the A's and simulation. Simulations for the A's in 2020 have all gone our way. Finally, assimilation does not go the A's way. What happened? We'll tell you next right here on A's Cast Live. Now back to A's Cast Live, broadcasting from the town. Here's Chris Townsend. Happy Friday to everybody. Start forgetting what day it is. Don't forget tomorrow night, we are back in action. Ken Korak and I will have the pregame show for you at 7.30. First pitch is going to be at 8 o'clock. 1974 World Series. You'll also be able to see it on NBC Sports California. Which game is it, Commander? It'll be game three of the 74 World Series tomorrow night on NBC Sports California and here on A's Cast. Game three. 
Dodger Stadium, and it's funny how how the Coliseum. Like I, I I said to my wife, I said, "What's different here with the Coliseum?" And this wasn't Mount Davis, obviously. She goes, "I have no idea." I'm like, "There's no diamond level seats. There's no one behind home plate. There's just a big green wall." So there's a lot of difference between these stadiums. I mean, Dodger Stadium's different, and we haven't even seen the renovation. They've renovated Do- so Dodger Stadium used to not be able to walk all the way around it. Now you can. So I'm, I'm interested to see what they did with Dodger Stadium. And Dodger Stadium, one of the great jewels. Okay, so coming up here at 3.30, we're going to have Steve Garvion, who was the MVP of the 1974 season, friend of the program, and I always love having Steve on. So in these simulations, the A's have been crushing it. They're in first place, right? Are they still in first place in baseball reference? After a long, long losing streak of six games, the A's head to Houston, and they took game one of the series. Ooh. After being swept by the Mariners and Indians, they take game one in Houston. Ooh. Big win for the uh, big win for the Athletics. So they're now Those seventeen and cheaters. ten. They're cheaters. Seventeen and ten for the A's. Seventeen and eleven for the White Hot Mariners, and then the Astros, I believe, were fifteen and eleven. So that's there's the simulations on the day to day, and then there was the athletic simulations. Well, I think they're thirty three and seventeen, so they're doing even better there. And then that brings us to a simulation that maybe isn't going the A's way. Uh, it's it's over. I mean, the greatness of the A's loses to the greatness of the Chicago White Sox. The dream bracket. The A's are not moving on. They lost in five games. They won the first game nine to three over. So it's the all-time A's against the all-time White Sox. How is this possible? There's no way the all-time White Sox team which is throwing out Robin Ventura is going to beat the all-time A's team. I, I, this, this, I demanded, uh, I demand this to be reviewed. You gotta be taping me. Hawks on the call. That's bad news, Cody. They're out. The dream bracket is out. Do you want to pop? Do you want to hear the White Sox roster? I have it ready. So I remember seeing it. It wasn't that impressive. They're starting pitchers. They have Mark Burley, Hawks' favorite player. Come on. Chris Sale, Billy Pierce, Ted Lyons, Ed Walsh, Red Faber, Wilbur Wood, Bobby oh. Bobby Jenks, Bobby oh. Thigpen, Hoyt Wilhelm, Roberto, Roberto Hernandez. Now here's their lineup. Carlton Fisk, a catcher. Frank Thomas. Nellie Fox. Those are all Hall of Famers. Robin Ventura. Get out of here with Ventura. Uh, Luke uh, Appling. Is that how you say his last name? Uh, yeah, yeah, Appling, yeah. Maglio Ordon- Ordon- uh, Ordonez. Mags? Mags is an all-time White Sox? Uh, Harold Baines, Minnie yeah. Minoso, and then their and their DH is Hawks' other favorite player, Paulie, Paul Canerco. Their bench, Jose Abreu, Philadelphia A's legend, Eddie Collins, Jermaine Dye, Shoeless Joe Jackson. Shoeless Joe didn't make the starting lineup? Louis uh, Aparicio and the great A.J. Perzinski. So there's the. That's the- not better than the all time ace team. Not even close. Uh, the all time ace team. Eddie Plank. All time ace team would have swept this White Sox team. Eddie Plank, Lefty Grove, Vida, Catfish, Hudson, Zito, 
Stu, Eck, Raleigh, Doolittle, Hudson, or Houston Street are the – that's just the pitchers. Mikey Cochran, Jimmy Fox, Eddie Collins, the captain, uh, Campy, Ricky, Al Simmons, Reggie Jackson, Jason Giambi, Mark McGuire, Shavi, Jose Canseco, Carney Lansford, Crush Davis, Terry Steinbach. Uh, I, what? What? Who, who, who's beating a team that <laughs> McGuire and Canseco can't even get in the lineup? <laughs> Think about that. McGuire and Canseco cannot get in the lineup. That's how good the A's team is. Now, the White Sox had to beat the Royals to get to the to the second round of this bracket where the A's beat Aubrey Huff's all-time great, Roy, uh, great, high, uh, all-time great Rays. So that's how we got here. And I thought that the, the Royals team that the, the White Sox beat, they weren't even better than the Royals team. I mean, here's here's just the Royals starting lineup. They had Sal Perez, Mike Sweeney, Frank White, George Brett, Fred Pat is it Paddock, Alex Gordon, Willie Wilson, Beltron, Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson. And they have a couple they have a couple pitchers you like in here. Brett Saberhagen, David he Cohn. Money. He's money. Zach Granke. He's money. Uh Gooby. Oh, you I love my guy Gooby. Wade Davis, Greg Holland, Jeff Montgomery, and Dan Quisenberry are just some of the starters. I left a few off. Hey, Kevin Jeff Apier is another one. And, and Quisenberry and Montgomery saved a lot of games in their career. Put uh, it this way. There's no way if you're putting up four starters, do you want to go up against a young Brett Saberhagen, a young David Cohn. Who else was in there? Mark, Mark Gubazaw. A young Zach Greinke. And a young Zach Greinke. You want to go up against that four? Yeah, uh, good luck. And then you have Holland in his prime, Wade Davis in his prime, and injury Bring relievers. Heat. Yeah, and, and and you have Quisenberry too. So you got Quisenberry's well, a side armor. I just I I don't know how they how they the the White Sox knocked off the the Royals and then the A's. I'm just saying this thing's trash. Yeah, it needs to be investigated. Well, I'm gonna hey, uh, maybe something we can save for Monday. But I really like this because there's a clip of Don Mattingly. It's on ESPN.com about how they're trying to talk about how a four-man outfield might be the next big trend. Oh, you know, I love four-man outfields. It's 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 so ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Even Don Mattingly says, listen, all you'd have to do, all you'd have to, if someone like Matt Olson, you're going to play four people in the outfield against him. I go up there and bunt four times and go four for four. You know how fast this thing would stop if somebody did that? Oh, I agree. I mean, it stop immediately. It would. It would. It, 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 it. I mean, seriously, you could check swing and hit a grounder to the left side, and you're going to get a base hit. You do that three, four times in a game, it's over. It's. I mean, that's. This is so radical. But see, what Mattingly says is is right, is that the guys don't take advantage of it. Like, guys of his era would have ate you alive if you did that. Now these guys are all just grip it and rip it. But if it gets to a point where you're consistently putting a four-man outfielder out there, guys will make it so easy to beat by just by just have to make contact and to the left side, and it's over. Well, I, I mean, 82% of the uh, four-man outfielders last year were the Rays and the Reds. The A's used zero format outfits last year, but in 2018, I went back and looked in the Bill James handbook. They used one. 
Uh, we didn't go over it, but the form, the, the the dream bracket. Do you want the final? Do you want the final eight teams that are left? Yes. It's Yankees, Astros, Red Sox, White Sox in the AL. So the Yankees beat the Indians, the Astros beat the Tigers, and then the the Red Sox beat the Blue Jays, and obviously the White Sox beat the A's. The NL, the Cardinals knocked off the Phillies. The Pirates lost, so the Reds knocked off the Pirates. So it's Reds, uh, Cardinals, and then. The Dodgers knocked off the Miami Marlins, who beat the Atlanta Braves in the first round. You're telling me they beat Greg Maddox, John Smoltz, well, uh, Warren Spawn, Phil Necro? Come on. Uh, and then you have the it was the Cubs and Brewers and the Brewers one. So you got Brewers, Dodgers, Reds, Cardinals, White Sox, Red Sox, Astros, Yankees in the final eight. Is my man Steve Garvey uh, the first baseman for the all-time Dodger team? Let's uh, let me pull up that team real quick. See if he's on there. Got Jackie Robinson. Is it Jackie Robinson or Davey Lopes at second base? Uh, Jackie. Um, on the, wow. The, believe Garvey's the DH. The first baseman is Gil Hodges. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bill Russell at short or, or Pee Wee Reese? Pee Wee Reese. And then you got Sheff- Sheffield in, the le- in left, Duke Snyder in center, and the 2019 NL MVP Cody Bellinger in right field. Please tell me the penguin Ron Say is a third baseman. Yes, he is. He's a third baseman. Uh, catcher is uh, Capanella. Correct. All right, who's the bench? Uh, Maury Wills, uh, Mr. Four Homers in a Game, Sean Green, uh, Matt Kemp, former Oakland A, Andre Ethier, Pedro Guerrero, and Mike Piazza, the Hall of Famer. It's a pretty good roster. Oh, their, their pitching staff's not bad. You got Koufax, some guy named Kershaw, Drysdale. Is it is it is it Hershiser? Is that how you say his name? Uh, <laughs> In his prime, Don Sutton. Uh, oh my God, Kenley Jansen, uh, Gagne, Mike Marshall, Regan, Don Newcomb, and Fernando Mania. Okay, I I I. So I got Koufax, I got Kershaw, I got Drysdale, <laughs> and and you got to go Hershiser because Hershiser in his prime, A's fans know that from 1988, Hershiser in his prime was arguably the best pitcher. 59 consecutive uh, scoreless innings. Yeah, he was unhittable. I mean, you got those guys, and then and then Fernando, Fernando Mania <laughs> in his prime? Are you kidding me? And then Jansen and Gagne in the bullpen with Mike Marshall? Come on. Do you get to – oh, and Don Newcomb was really good too. Yeah. Here's so the, so, so here, here's my question. Would the Brooklyn Dodger players have to wear the Brooklyn hat and the L.A. Dodgers fans, they wear the L.A. hat? That'd be neat. I, would actually, I wouldn't mind seeing that. They're all on the same team, but they have more different hats. It's like the All-Star game. They all wear the same jersey, but they wear diff- do they wear different hats in the All-Star game? Hey, last time I checked, I've been watching 72 and 73 – I'm watching. I, I'm watching Dick Williams and the coaches have a white hat, and the A's players got a green hat. Yeah, that, that's well. That's well. It was that was that was a Charlie Finley thing, wasn't it? What the Philadelphia? I don't. What what, what 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 was the hat like for the Philadelphia A's? Uh, let me look it up. Because I I think I remember seeing it before. It's it was just the it was like a uh the the hats that come up on Google was like a. There's a couple, like a bluish hat with a white A, and then there was a, like the, it's like a dark blue with a, uh, 
Yeah, a dark blue with like a white A. That's what it looks like for the Philadelphia A's. If you go through all-time uh, uniforms, it's kind of crazy. I have a picture in my uh, in my studio here of my grandfather as a Pittsburgh Pirate, and the Pirates were red, white, and blue. Yeah, I remember that. I remember you talking about that, but I also remember those, seeing those pictures that it's just crazy. That's the, uh, the that's what the Pirates looked like, and then now they're just black and yellow. Yeah, that the the all-time Marlins roster. I pulled up because I'm so surprised they beat the the Braves. Uh, Riomilto. Derek Lee, Luis Castillo, Mike Lowe. Get out of here. Hanley Ramirez, Hanley Ramirez in, his, in his prime. Gary Sheffield. Trash. Christian Yelich, who couldn't hit home runs with them. Giancarlo Stanton and Miguel Cabrera is their DH. Now, the Braves roster, I'm not even going to bring up the pitchers because we know who their pitchers are already. Uh, Javi Lopez, Freddie Freeman, Marcus Giles, brother of Brian Giles, Chipper, uh, Jeff Blauser, Dale Murphy, Andrew Jones, Henry Aaron, and Eddie Matthews. You're telling me the Marlins beat that team. What uh, not here? No, the starting rotation was Hall of Famer Warren Spawn, Hall of Famer John Smoltz, Hall of Famer Greg Maddox, Hall of Famer Tom Glavin, Hall of Famer Phil Necro. <laughs> so Josh, there's no way the all-time Marlins are beating the all-time Braves. Get out of here. So so Josh Johnson and the Marlins with Josh Beckett beat uh, Maddox and Glavin and Smoltz, Spawn and Necro. Every guy the Braves throw out there is an all-time. Are you calling Garvey? Yeah, I'm gonna call him right now. But yeah, that that it still blew, it blows my mind that the Marlins with Kevin Brown beat the beat the Braves team. Get out of here! You're telling me Christian Yelich hit more home runs than Henry Aaron? Steve Garvey, hey how there. you doing? It's Chris Townsend with the Oakland A's. Hey, Chris, how are you? We're doing great. And on the line, just to let everybody know, is an all-time great. He was a ten-time All-Star. He was a National League MVP in 1974, World Series champion in '81, two-time NLCS MVP, four-time Gold Glove winner, a winner of the Roberto Clemente Award. The great Steve Garvey is with us. Steve, thank you so much for the time. Absolutely. Uh, keep going. It sounds All right. Great. You were a terrific <laughs> football player. I always try and tell people you were a oh, more, more. player, Michigan State. Because I've, I've been talking about you and Reggie Jackson because I watched the yeah. 1978 World Series and you hit that triple at Yankee Stadium. And I'm like, yeah. people people don't remember you being this fast player, but you were a, I mean, come on, you're a cornerback in college. And then I think yeah. about Reggie Jackson, you know, People don't remember what a great athlete Reggie was. Also, a football player. Absolutely, you know. Of course, he's a dear friend of mine. And I was just thinking before the number of World Series that we played against each other. Of course, starting in '74 and um, '77, '78, '81. You know, it was quite a a, uh, a kind of a golden sombrero, I guess, for the for the two of us. You know, we always had great respect for each other and. And I always tell people, of course, 77, he had that great final game with the three home runs. And then um, 81 was finally our year. And it's two out in the ninth inning at the Yankee Stadium. And I look up and it's 11.59. And, you know, you can sense that all those years uh, growing up as a kid, being the Yankees and Dodgers in the backyard with little little grapefruits and wiffle balls out of Florida, uh, that this was finally going to be it. And he, I remember he said to me, he says, Garb, it's your turn finally. He pats me on the behind. Next pitch goes to center and uh, the world champions. So we had a lot of great memories. And we've been replaying the World Series 
uh, not only here on A's cast, but also on NBC Sports California. We started with 72, the Hares versus the Squares, the Big Red Machine and the A's. And then 73 right. was the Mets. The You know, the Mets came out of nowhere. And then we've now gotten into 74, where you guys won 102 games. You guys were the favorites. And the A's end up winning this series in five games. And they only used five pitchers the entire series, which you'll never see that again. No, and, you know, I – you don't always look at 74 when you talk about that, that stretch of about 10 years there with the, uh, you know, with our, what I call the golden era, when our infield com- came together in the middle of 73 and then going through the world championship in 81, even the next year we, we just missed out. But um, because that was really, you know, we were just coming together, a group of young guys versus a group of mature, experienced players in the A's. And, um, you know, it, it was really a separation of experience versus kind of a, uh, a young and the restless type of situation. And then you start to get in and take, take a look at the, uh, the 74 series in itself. And if you look at it, you go, my, I can't believe that there was four three to two games and one five to two and how, how so few runs separated what could have been couple of swings here or there from uh, the Dodgers winning. It was really a great competitive World Series. Did you guys know before the series that Blue Moon Odom and Raleigh Fingers had gotten into a fight and Raleigh Fingers had to have stitches before the World Series? Did your clubhouse know about that? Uh, Yeah, I believe so. Uh, You know, there was nothing new about the turmoil with the A's. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, Charlie Finley and everything that went uh, went with that that period of time, you know, which is arguably the greatest the greatest uh, period there for for Oakland. There's always something happening. It was uh, entertaining. It was uh, part of the the transition. I've always said from that era that went up to to the early '70s from the '50s, and then from the early '70s to '90 was the next era. And, uh, and, of course, the great success that uh, the A's had, 72, 3, 4, et cetera. But it was, uh, it was good for baseball. You know, when I was growing up, uh, your, your guys' infield was the gold standard. You think of the Penguin, Ron Say, and Russell at short, and Davey Lopes at second base, and you at first base. You guys were together for so long. What was that yeah, bond yeah. like between all of you guys? Because you played a long time together. Well, it was, it was eight and a half years. You know, and uh, arguably the greatest infield in history. Uh, when you when you look at, yeah, you know, obviously length of time together and success we had, and durability, and individual performances, and the uniqueness of of four guys staying together for that long. Number one, and give Val Campanis credit for for seeing the potential when I was really the last piece. On June 23rd of 73, I was a kind of a struggling third baseman with an old shoulder separation injury from Michigan State football and, uh, and had been struggling uh, to get into the lineup, but was, you know, really gaining success as a pinch hitter. And on that day, uh, I was leading the league in pinch hitting and we uh, were in the Reds at Dodger Stadium. And Freddie Norman had always given us trouble, you know, a little lefty sinker slider change up. Uh, Walter Olson just 
hated it that he was, you know, when he was pitching against us because everybody was still trying to hit the ball out and he was just relying on the big sluggers to uh, swing away. And I did up pretty well against him. I'd go the other way. But that first game, I think it was a one nothing shutout and I got one of the two hits. And in between uh, the first and second game, we had about 35, 40 minutes. And I was sitting there with a sandwich and, and thinking to myself, well, at least, at least I got a hit. And Walter Olson uh, walks by and he stops and he looks at me. He said, uh, hey, kid, you ever play first? I said, oh, sure. <laughs> and I played one game in Little League and one game in AAA. I had a bad hamstring and first base was close to the uh, first base dugout in, uh, in Spokane. And he said, well, uh, get a glove and play first tonight. He said, they have another lefty thrown against us, and lefties have given us trouble. And uh, so I borrowed a glove and got a bad boy to play catch and went out and had him throw me you know, a couple of them in the uh, grass to try to work on digging them out. And uh, we won that night, got a couple of hits, uh, some RBIs, uh, didn't trip over the bag, and I think it came off the bag for a tag and dug a backhander out of the out of the dirt and I'm sitting in my locker after the game and you know, those days where everything comes together and feel pretty good about it. And I'm sitting there and I see out of the corner of my eye, Walt Olsen walk into the clubhouse and he comes down our row, Steve Rager's next to me and he doesn't stop, but I hear, uh, you're in there tomorrow. And I look at Jaeger and I said, Jaeger, is he talking about you or me? And he uh, said, Garvin, I think it's you. Uh, and it was. And I was in the next day and got some more hits and we went on the road and started playing regularly. And that was the beginning of the infield that lasted up until 1982. And Davey Lopes' contract had run out in 81. So he was the first of the infield to leave. But um, that's why arguably I said the greatest infield in history because of the individuals, the team success, uh, the uniqueness of it. And, um, you know, we've always taken a lot of pride in it. Six times you had 200 hits or more. In this year, 1974, you're 25 years old. You win the MVP. You're a gold glover, and you're an all-star. And what I don't think a lot of people in my audience may know this, because it's crazy to think that you never played first base, you would go on to set the record for most consecutive games played ever in the National League at a position you never played. Well, it uh, it saved me from like running to the outfield all the time. <laughs> no, it's uh, you know uh, amazing how uh, you know you just put your faith in God's hands, and that's what I did. And I went out, and then I started you know putting in thirty, thirty, forty minutes every day at two thirty in the afternoon, you know, learning position, and it just came naturally. You know, I always said, uh, you know, I'm. I'm about 510, you know, you always just think about first baseman being the big guys, big power guys. And most of them, you know, that's the position they play when they can't play anything else. But, you know, I had been a defensive back in, in college and had good eye and coordination and had this knack for digging balls out of the dirt. And uh, it, um, you know, it was a rapid escalation in me adapting to first base. And eventually with the infield, we had this little motto, throw it high you know, wave goodbye, throw it low, we're good to go. <laughs> and, um, and I, you know, it ended up winning four gold gloves after being a guy without a position and a wild arm. Um, I've always told this story and it's an example of working hard and, and uh, never giving up. And, uh, when you, when you, that hard work, you know, 
and pep preparation uh, plus opportunity means success. So, um, you know, over the years, that that unique situation where Chris Paulston never said, hey, kid, have you played first? And if I hadn't said yes, if I had said no, you know, I might not be talking to you today. But uh, because, you know, I said yes, seized the moment, saw as an opportunity, carpe diem, as they say. Um, the next 15 and a half years were, uh, were, you know, a blessing. Me at first base and playing on great teams. Got an offer I could refuse, you know, after my contract was up in 82 and ended up in San Diego. And by the second year, you know, able to, to uh, help take that team to the World Series for the first time. So um, you just never know in life. You just keep working hard. And you've seen, it's still the biggest home run in Padre history off Lee Smith. Uh, I'll never forget that. And uh, as Don Drysdale said, as you were rounding the bases, and there will be a tomorrow. Uh, I want to uh, get into Raleigh Fingers. I think for a lot of young A's fans, Raleigh Fingers, we're, we're, we're getting to see his true greatness. He is the MVP of the 1974 World Series. You'd go on to face him a, a lot more when he'd get into the National League with the Padres, but what was it like facing the greatness that is Raleigh Fingers? Well, you know, uh, obviously the end, you know, justifies the means, and he's a, he's a great Hall of Famer who was uh, just consistently good during the time when, you know, relievers could possibly play, pitch two or three innings. You know, and I think we goose gossage a lot about that. You know, Raleigh would come in and. Kind of through three quarters, you know, a little drop down sometimes, had that tough slider. He threw one that I think he intentionally backed up. And then the good hard one to a right-hander, you know, which was uh, usually low and away, which I, I couldn't – never gave up on those too much. I kept thinking I could hit it, you know, the other way. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he was a pitcher's pitcher, so to speak. He, uh, he thought the situation out, uh, executed – Two strikes, you know, that back, back then that was when guys went out to throw strikes, you know, and not uh, try to set you up with six or seven pitches. And uh, again, tremendous amount of respect for him. Again, somebody who's been a, a good friend over the years, but really was the heart and soul uh, of the A's during that time when uh, the closer was, uh, again, a, a, a guy who threw more innings. Yeah, and let's end on this. And you're talking about a guy you played against in World Series and then a guy you played with in San Diego, Goose Gossage. I think we're starting to realize, especially a lot of young baseball fans, are getting to see these guys and the amount of innings and appearances they had because a lot of people have grown up with just the closer pitches the ninth inning. What made Raleigh and what made Goose Gossage really two of the greats of all time was how much, Steve, they actually pitched and the bulk of their innings and appearances. Uh, absolutely. You know, I mean, if you look at the game through the ages or any sport, you look at uh, what becomes the, I like to call it the, uh, the game culture of that era. And uh, that was the culture of that era. You know, it was when, uh, when you got paid a, uh, as a starter for complete games and innings pitched, and uh, as a closer, you maybe had a setup guy, and then you took it from there. You know, you didn't see an average of four and a half pitchers a game, or in September, six or seven pitchers a game. So uh, that was their role. That was their job. They got paid for doing that. Um, you know, and I and, and I call it the golden era. 
you know, it was before the transition of the late 80s into the 90s, the change of the uh, economics of the game, uh, an era of more specialization. And, um, you know, was, uh, I look back now and I was very honored to play. I, of course, I wish the economics of, uh, you know, the 70s and 80s were the same as the, uh, you know, 2010s and what's happening in the 20s. But, uh, you know, it's the old saying, you can only do the best you can during your time. And, and again, I think I gave it all I had in the field. And I'm able to look back now and, and think I was very blessed to be part of it. Yeah, we've been noticing watching all these games, whether it's all the great players on the Dodgers, all the great players. I mean, Tom Seaver was one of the best, and we got to see the big red machine. And uh, it's just been a lot of fun looking back at 70s baseball. It was a different game, but it was actually a, a better game to watch. And I grew up a big fan of yours. I always appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about the 1974 World Series. And be safe, and we'll have you on again once we get this thing going. Absolutely. I agree. And best everybody. And God bless. Be safe. Um, and uh, let's talk again when they're playing games. Take care, Steve. Right now. Thanks. The great Steve Garvey. I do believe he should be in the Hall of Fame. I'm looking at the numbers right now. Six times he had 200 hits. How many guys have had 200 hits six times in their career? If I'm trying to think of people off the top of my head, I would say Ichiro. 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 Ty Cobb. Probably Henry Aaron. Ichiro. I mean, I bet it's not many. And then did you know that that I think it still stands today. The national obviously Cal Ripken has the record, but the National League record for most consecutive games played. Garvey had it. I think he still has it. I didn't know I didn't I was more I was more surprised to hear that the only reason he's a first baseman is because he told he told Walter Austin that yeah, I can play first. Well, hey, that was one of the things when we were, you know, preparing for, uh, for, for, for doing these series. And I'm going back and, like, Walter Alston is the manager. It's not Tommy Lasorda. It's Walter. I mean, this is old school. Yeah. Well, Tommy, Tommy was against a... Walter Alston. Yogi Berra against Dick Williams. Uh, I mean, come on. Sparky Anderson against Dick Williams. I mean, these are all legendary managers. Yeah. Tommy Lasorda was the third base coach for the for – the... Uh, Los Angeles Dodgers before he took over and, you know, got him to the World Series in, what, 81? But, yeah, it's crazy to think. Uh, the Yogi Bear as the manager is still my favorite one. Yogi Bear as the manager, the, just seeing that, like we I talked about, Hank Aaron throwing out the first pitch and Willie yeah. Mays getting introduced in his last, in his last World and, Series. And A's fans knew the greatness of Willie Mays, and A's fans gave Willie his due in 1973, and Roy Steele backs off. And allows Willie Mays to have that time because probably back. I don't know. I could be totally wrong. Once again, I was just born. I bet the animosity between the Giants and the A's probably wasn't like it is today. Like ownership, front offices. I don't think the players really care, obviously. But I just, you know, the whole fan bases. The A's fans, it was a very nice tribute to Willie Mays, who is... If you're going to have the conversation of greatest players of all time, I don't know who it is, but Willie Mays is in that conversation. Oh, absolutely. And I love the – The they, guy throwing uh, out the first pitch, Henry Aaron, he's in the conversation. Uh, I went back and looked. Henry Aaron has only had uh, 200 hits twice in his Major League Baseball career. Each row seven times. 
I mean, that, that, that's, it kind of tells you what a hitting machine. I mean, look at this for Garvey. 200, 210, 200, 192, 202, 204, 200. I mean, he was a, in his prime, he was a hitting machine. And he, and, and like what you're not going to get from certain guys in these years, he's hitting 33 home runs, 21, 28, 26, driving in well over 100 runs. He's a gold glover. He won an MVP. He finished second in the MVP balloting in 1978. I just, I don't know why Garvey's not, why we don't think of him. I mean, he played every day. He was a gold glover. And remember, Dodger Stadium is not a hitter's ballpark at night at all. I, and I know the war is not what you'd think, but I'm taking Steve Garvey over Brian Giles any day of the week. So that tells me all I need to know about war. Yeah, I went, I went back and looked, and uh, I wanted to see who else had 200 hits. Derek Jeter did it eight times. Jose Altuve already has, it, has done, 400, uh, has done 200, 200 hits already four times in his career. Uh, uh, Jose Altuve. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, how about how about this for Garvey? He played an eleven playoff series. All right, this is Garvey in the playoffs. A career three thirty eight hitter, eleven home runs, thirty one RBIs, and a nine ten OPS. Is that any good? Uh, he should be in the Hall of Fame. We 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 remember we had him we had him on when that vote was coming down for the the modern was it the modern day committee. We yeah. had him on, and we talked to him about it, and we had Del Murphy on at the same time, and Tommy John, who, shameless plug, he's going to join us on Monday because he was on the 74 Dodger team. The, the, the man who has the most famous surgery named after him in sports and won a boatload of games, almost 300 games, and had, what, 150-something no decisions, not in the Hall of Fame? 188. 188. And he, uh, he and also was- he had that surgery for the first time. In 1974. So there's a very big tie with Tommy John and the A's and the Dodgers in that World Series. Yeah, how's Tommy John not in the Hall of Fame? You, the Hall of Fame, Who we, we have Richard Justice on. And we're, we've been playing this clip of Richard Justice from MLB.com who talks about guys who, people who change the game are Hall of Famers. And that's where he brings up Billy Bean, but Billy's not eligible yet. Tommy John changed the game. If it's not for Tommy John... I mean, come on. And he won 280-something games? 288. He's at 288 wins, has the most famous surgery, and he's not in the Hall of Fame. I I don't get it. Uh, I went back and looked. I was wrong. Henry Aaron had 300 hits or 200 hits three times. There was one year he had 200 hits and didn't lead baseball. That was in 1963, so I missed that. So three times for Hank Aaron, four for Altuve, eight for Derek Jeter, seven for my guy Ichiro, going back and looking. Let's see who beat uh, National League. Nineteen said, "Who beat out Steve Garvey for MVP in nineteen seventy-eight? That would be the Cobra, the former athletic, the part legend, Dave Parker, the great Dave Parker." All right, you got a couple buying or sellings in this thing. It's time for buying. Or selling. Sell, sell. Right now with Chris Townsend on A's Cast Live. Oh, the Cobra, 1978. Ten years before I was born. Next year, the Pirates won the World Series. Haven't won since. So, How's he not in the Hall of Fame? He's another one. He was on that He was on that ballot, too, with Tommy John and, and right, Gail Murphy. Can I, can, I, can I give you the Cobra's resume? Sure. I mean, you can always talk about Dave Parker. 
NL MVP in 1978, three-time Gold Glove winner, three-time Silver Slugger, two-time NL batting champion, led the NL and RBIs in 1985, two World Series. He won two World Series. He was a seven-time All-Star. He drove in uh, uh, 1,493 runs. He almost had 1,500 RBIs. How's this man not in the Hall of Fame? I, I don't. I don't get all the people we brought up: Garvey, Tommy John, Dave Parker, Dale Murphy. Dale Murphy winning MVPs playing center field. I don't get how they're not in the Hall of Fame. Maybe, maybe eventually get in. I don't want it to be a situation where it's like uh, what Kenny Stabler, where he gets into the Hall of Fame after he passes, unfortunately. But you know, we still got time. We'll see if they get in. But. A career OPS plus of 121 and a career OPS of 810 for the Cobra, former Oakland Athletic. Yeah, he. I remember I, he was great for the A's, great for the Pirates. He was just a great overall player, and it's a shame that he's not in. So I want to start this first by saying that, you know, coming up next on A's Cast, we're going to replay the A's 28th victory from last year. That was on May 25th versus the Seattle Mariners, who are only a half game behind them right now in the simulations. Mike Fires versus Yusei Kikuchi. And uh, Blake Trinan will get the save in this game. The A's win 6-5. But tomorrow night, Saturday, we have the Legendary Moments pregame show presented by Budweiser with you and the great Ken Korak at 7.30 ahead of Game 3 of the 1974 World Series versus the Dodgers on NBC, NBC Sports California. So let's start with this. The NFL draft was last night, and we saw a lot of guys essentially get their dream of being, being drafted and going to play in the NFL. One of them being Joe Burrow of the Cincinnati Bengals. Now, we just talked to Steve Garvey, who played college football, and uh, Kyler Murray played college football as well, and he was drafted by the A's, and he chose football. So what about Jeff Samarja, former Oakland A's starter and now Giants pitcher? During his junior year at Notre Dame, Jeff Samarja had 77 catches, 1,249 yards, and 15 touchdowns. His senior year, 78 catches, 1,017 yards, 12 touchdowns. Samarja could have been a first-round pick in the NFL draft in 2006. Now, during his MLB career, he's 80 and 104 with a 409 ERA and 1,443 strikeouts and over 1,600 career innings pitched. He has a career WAR of 15.2. Buying or selling, Jeff Samarja would have been a star wide receiver in the National Football League. Dun 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 dun! Uh, I'm selling, and I'll give you a uh, 122. Uh, 122 million reasons why uh, Jeff Samarja <laughs> made the right choice. You believe that? Jeff Samarja has almost made 123 million in his career. And he's 24 games under 500 in his career. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's 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 what happens. Uh, I had a really good long write-up about the Red Sox and Alex Cora and being a manager again next year, but I was going to skip all that and just say, the Red Sox removed the interim tag from Ron Renneke. Now, Renneke will be the manager for the 2020 season if and when it starts. Now, Heim Bloom, the chief baseball officer of the Boston Tampa Bay Rays, said Renneke is under contract to be the manager of the Red Sox through 2020 only. Renneke was the bench coach under Alex Cora in 2018, the year that they were under investigation for sign stealing, and they said that it was just a rogue video operator, JT Watkins. Buying or selling, Bruce Bochy will be the Red Sox manager in 2021. Oh, I'm selling that. <laughs> well, you're the Padres manager. Oh, they're going to get rid of Jace Tingler and the other two managers they have. Padres will be bad. Everybody's going to get fired, and Bochy will come back to save 
the Friars. Gotta find. Well, you know what? I need to. We need to call my brother and to see uh, what, what what he's been hearing from his organization. <laughs> All right, la- last one because uh, I w- I was gonna save the uh, Fernando Tatis one. We'll save that for Monday. It's still relevant because uh, nothing's gonna change from 1999 till now. Now, Alex Rodriguez once again wants to be like Derek Jeter. I saw that headline. Someone else had that headline, but I wanted to put it in here. Aaron, his fiance. Jennifer Lopez, or J-Lo, have retained J.P. Morgan to represent them in a raising capital for a possible bid for the New York Mets, according to multiple reports. Now, the Mets' ownership is headed by Fred Wilpon, brother-in-law Saul Katz, and Fred Wilpon's son, Jeff, the team's chief operating officer. Now, the team had a deal with Steve Cohn, but obviously that fell through, and they're still looking to maybe sell the team. Now, I'm just going to get to it right now. Buying or selling... Alex Rodriguez will be the next owner of the New York Mets. Oh, I'm buying. It'll be so good. Meet the Mets. Uh, Meet the Mets. They already got a nickname for it. J-Rod. That's not bad. That's not bad. And you could have uh, a... They're already so dysfunctional anyway, the Mets. Why not even bring more dysfunction? They can have uh, A-Rod cap night, A-Rod bobblehead night. Um, Someone suggests that J-Lo could dance and sing the seventh <laughs> inning stretch every night. Oh, J-Lo, I love it. Make it happen. You're yeah. Mets. They, hey, Pete Alonso getting hitting advice from A-Rod. Hopefully he doesn't follow the other advice he would give him, but who knows. <laughs> That's all, all right. I got. Enjoy the rest of the day. Enjoy an A's victory over the Mariners, and we'll see you all tomorrow night at 7.30 right here on A's Cast, getting you ready for the 1974 World Series. Have a great day, everybody. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.